What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith, host of the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and I answer your phone calls and respond to your tweets. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions and straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. All that and more. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. Join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. We gather a seasoned elder, myself as the middle generation, and a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations, prepare to engage or hear perspectives that literally no one else has had. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A warmer from the low, welcome to Love Las Vegas. For Jessica Stevens, with myself, Greg H. Peters, and now part of the Easton Family Podcast. We've got a great podcast for you guys. Join me in segment number two. It's one of our good friends, Blake Lovell, does great work at South Houston 14. He's going to join me to take a look at the landscape of the SEC. We're going to take a look at a few games for Sunday as well, but mainly recapping some of the big things that we did see from a rambunctious college basketball Saturday and some standings of some of these teams are ascending slash declining out there in the southeast part of the country. So we're going to be chatting with him in segment number two. In the final segment, going to give you guys picks and analysis on every game on the betting board for this college basketball Sunday as we hit some bank shots. If you've got a question, comment, segment idea, what have you for this podcast, you do have one of two ways to be able for those in. First one is my Twitter timeline, at GNN underscore D1. Keep in mind, letters CM. Naming does not matter. As per usual, please do send these into the timeline. And the other way, that is find an Apple Podcast review. If you rate this podcast five stars, it is very much appreciated. From there, you're able to fire in whatever you'd like to hear on this podcast via that five-star review. Did not get in any Twitter questions today, but boy, did we have an interesting day of college basketball on Saturday. We saw some bad beats. We saw some strange results. Let's dive in, take a look at these teams, try to find some trends, and just try to get a better lay of the land in general in college basketball. A games from yesterday is Greg buzzing about. Here is the Rowdy Recap. We're going to go with more of the ranked results first, and then we're going to go into the against the spread oddities a little bit later on. But you did see the good old whatever Georgetown does in the first half, bet the opposite in the second half live betting angle. Come through as I tweeted out that I took Xavier minus 10.5 live. I also was in on Georgetown catching right around 18, 18.5 points pregame. So both of those came through. Xavier, they get it done by a count of 95 to 82. In this one, Georgetown shoots 50% from the floor, but he also allowed Xavier to shoot 55% from the field. And for Georgetown, Primo Spears, 37 points, 11 assists go down in vain as he also did have six turnovers in this game, but... Zach Fremantle had 30 points, 11 rebounds, 7 assists, and for Xavier, 31 assists on 39 made buckets. There was just no defense whatsoever to be had by Georgetown, a team that has not won a game against a Big East team since the 2021 Big East Tournament. Duke, they win, but they don't cover against Miami by a count of 68 to 66 for Miami. They go 10 or 21 from three to be a hold in there as Duke still did a relatively solid job on defense. 
Duke won the rebound battle by a count of 44 to 38. And finally, Derek Lively at his coming out party. Not a lot of scoring, six points, but 10 rebounds, five blocks. Kyle Filipowski, 17 points, 14 rebounds. Sariq Whitehead chipped in their 10. So the freshman at Duke really starting to ascend as Duke also went 9 of 21 from three-point range. It was no Chad Omir who had to try to hold things down down low, 14 rebounds and nine points. But Miami still able to get the cover regardless in this one. The DK Nation pick of the under in UCLA versus Arizona. It doesn't get much easier when it comes to totals than this. This was a rocking chair winner, 58 to 52. Arizona gets the job done, and this was a total that closed right around 149. So it was clear by about 39 points. Azula Sabellis, Umar Balo combined for 30 points, 18 rebounds. Arizona went 5 of 18 from 3. UCLA went 4 of 20 from distance. These two teams couldn't throw a grape in the ocean in this game. A combined 28 turnovers. Just a grimy, sad game to save least. I'm Yakez, Jalen Clark, making mine for 21 rebounds at 24 points, but really the perimeter of both teams just did absolutely nothing whatsoever. And you saw Arizona being able to win from within. Iowa State, who has been one of your better cover teams in all of college basketball, they go down in a fiery heap by a count of 61 to 59. Iowa State had full control of this game, by the way. They were up 27-13 midway through the first half. Looked like they were just going to cruise to a victory. And then Oklahoma State was able to storm back. It was just Iowa State holding on to that lead in the second half, but they were unable to hold for the entirety of the game as Iowa State took 22 more field goal attempts than Oklahoma State. Now Oklahoma State did have 16 more free throw attempts, but for Oklahoma State, they got it done by going 9-21 from three-point range. Iowa State actually won the rebound battle by a count 39 to 31, and they won the turnover battle 16 to 10. But Oklahoma State was able to get their shots to fall. Avery Anderson, 18 points, five assists, eight turnovers, but also went two of three from three by range with three blocks as well. That's a very harebrained line. Oshun Oshuni, 15.7 rebounds, but for Iowa State, they shot sub 40% from the field. That was their undoing. Kansas, who was looking like they had a case to perhaps be the number one team in all of college basketball about seven days ago. They've now lost back-to-back games. They got completely dump-trucked by TCU. This one by a count of 83-60, to 60, and this is all about TCU getting out to that hot run to begin the game. They were up 36-15 in the first half, actually 37-15 in the first half as Shahada Wells. He was able to come in off the bench, shot 7-8 from the floor, 17 points. Damian Baugh, Mike Miles in the backcourt combined for 8 assists, 16 points. They did have a combined 9 turnovers as well, but for Kansas, they go 7-21 from 3. And for Kansas, 17 turnovers. They lose a rebound battle, 36-30. This was the second worst loss, I believe, in the Bill Self era at the Fog. So that was quite something to behold. Arkansas has fallen on some tough times in the SEC, and we're going to be talking a lot more about the SEC in the next segment, but they take down Ole Miss, they get the win, they get the cover, 69-57, to and gotta wonder if Kermit Davis is on the hot seat out in Ole Miss. They did have Deshaun Ruffin back in the fold, he came in off the bench, 10 points, went 2 of 3 from 3, and for Ole Miss, they just could not hold on to the ball, 17 turnovers in this game, they forced just 11 of Arkansas, and for Arkansas, Anthony Black, Eight assists, five seals, 17 points. He was able to stuff the sad sheet. So that was a good sign for an Arkansas team that things have been less than savory for them recently. Your top cover team in all of college basketball is Florida Atlantic, and 
They get another cover. They're now 14-3-1 against the spread. And UTEP entered in this game 13-4 against the spread. So these were two of the best cover teams in all of college basketball. 67-59, Florida Atlantic. They close right around a 5.5 to a 6-point favorite. They get the cover. Goes 6-16 six of 16 from 3 firing shot. For Florida Atlantic, they had 20 turnovers on 20 made buckets. Typically, when you got that set, you lose the game. But they also got to the free throw line. And for UTEP... They had 15 turnovers of their own in this game. UTEP actually wins the rebound battle by kind of 43-40 to 40 as they got 16 points out of both Calvin Solomon along with Tate Hardy, but for Atlantic, Hole was greater than some of its parts, and John L. Davis came in off the bench. 20 points with 6 of 9. Very nice from the floor. Clemson, they get it done, and as a one-point favorite, this is pretty much a push on the line. They get it in by kind of 51-50. to 50. Just a slog of a game in this one as you saw Virginia Tech win the offensive rebound battle by a count of 7-4, to four, but for Clemson, they just had P.J. Hall and Hunter Tyson be a little bit better. 32 points, 17 rebounds between the two of them. For Virginia Tech, Grant Pasile was able to chip in their 13 points, 8 rebounds, but in the end, Clemson, they go 12-15 of 15 from the free throw line. Virginia Tech, 8-12. of 12. That turned out to be the difference in this one. Alabama, Perhaps they have a case to be the number one team in all of college basketball. I still give it to Houston, but we'll discuss this in the next segment with Blake Lovell. They go on the road and they pummel Missouri by kind of 85 to 64. Alabama only went 10 to 35 from three-point range, but they had Noah Clowney go for 17 points, 14 rebounds for Missouri. They were as cold as an igloo. They shot 33% from the floor and 3 of 28 from three. This Alabama defense has been stifling. Isaiah Mosley... Thank goodness gracious, Missouri is finally giving him minutes once again. He had 19 points, and he was a lone saving grace for this team as you had one other player that chipped in there more than 10 points in this one, DeAndre Golson. So that was not a savory performance for Missouri, to say the least. West Virginia, they have just one win within the conference. They fall to Texas by a count of 69-60. to And if you take a look at the Big 12, Texas Tech is now 0-7 as they ended up losing to Kansas State by kind of 68 to 58 as Kansas State sole possession of first place in the conference. And Kansas State won this game despite the fact that they took 24 fewer field goal attempts than Texas Tech. They lose the rebound battle. They lose the turnover battle. But Keontae Johnson and Marquise Noel were just better. They had 38 points, 19 rebounds between the two of them. And for Texas Tech, 7-29 from three-point range. Getting back to the Texas and West Virginia game. Texas goes to 3 of 13 from 3 point range, but Marcus Carr, 23 points. Christian Bishop off the bench, 7 boards, 11 points. And for West Virginia, you got 22 points out of Kadrian Johnson, but also 6 turnovers, says that's where West Virginia lost this game. They lost their turnover battle 20 to 13. So that was a little bit of a grimy and yucky game. Gonzaga got the win, but they did not get the cover as. They were able to knock off Pacific by kind of 99-90, a game in which they allowed, I believe it was 36 points in the first 15 minutes of this game. So another easy over. And if you're looking at your least profitable teams in college basketball, the teams that have been lighting your money on fire, Gonzaga now 5-14-1 against the spread. We'll get into some more of these teams in a minute. But for Gonzaga, Drew Timmy certainly did his part. 38 points. He goes 17 of 23 from the floor. Reels in there. Five boards, two blocks. But for Pacific, they went 9 of 20 from three-point range with Luka Andovich, Caleb Boone combining for 28 points of their own. 
Pacific lost the rebound battle by Icon 32-22, but just six turnovers for Pacific, just seven turnovers for Gonzaga. Gonzaga has also been one of your better over teams in all of college basketball as well. To give a little bit of credit where credit is due as well, I'm talking about top and bottom cover teams. Kansas State have yeah, been one of your better cover teams in all of college basketball as well. And so has St. Mary's. St. Mary's, they need to be ranked in the top 25. They were able to get the job done in very convincing fashion as they go and they knock off Santa Clara by a count of 77 to 58. They're now 15 and 6 against the spread. For Santa Clara, you did have Carlos Stewart chip in their 17 points, but for Santa Clara, they go 9 of 20 from three-point range. Santa Clara goes 7 of 14 from three-point range, but also 7 of 14 at the free throw line as Ada Mahaney, 20 points in this game. For St. Mary's, they win the turnover battle 14 to 8. They win the rebound battle 31 to 24. This team just does all the little things oh so well. Let's take a look at some of the top cover teams in all of college basketball. NC Central certainly has been one of them. They entered into the day 10-3-1 against the spread and against Delaware State. They were able to keep that going. They win by 19 points. This by a count of 74-55. Hey, I wonder who handicapped this game at a 19.5. But Delaware State right now one of your saddest teams in all of college basketball. And the medley of bacon. Brendan Medley Bacon at 21 points in this contest. So that brings a little bit of a smile to my heart. Pittsburgh has been one of your better cover teams in all of college basketball. They were unable to keep that going on Saturday, though, because they lose to Florida State by kind of 71 to 64. And it's a Florida State team, I believe, has out covered eight out of their last 11 games. For Florida State, they had Darren Green Jr. going 5 of 8 from three point range, 24 points. And for Pittsburgh, they do live and die by the three a little bit too much. Blake Hinson goes four of nine from three of the rest of the team. They go three of 19 as Hinson had 16 points, nine rebounds, and Jamarius Burton had five assists, 20 points, but really other than those two gentlemen, nobody else really showed up for this team. For Virginia, getting back to some of the ranked teams, they were able to get the job done. They get the win. They get the cover against Wake Forest, 76 to 67, and I want to mention one of the top over teams in all of college basketball, Virginia. They certainly are fitting that bill as... I believe they have now played four out of their last six games to the over as Virginia went 15 of 34 from three-point range. They also won the rebound battle by kind of 38 to 32 as for Wake Forest, Damari Monsanto had 25 points. They all go in vain just because Virginia, they kept shooting threes and they kept making threes. Fortunately, in college basketball, every team now has at least three covers, which means that your new worst cover eight team in all of college basketball is Notre Dame. They lose to Boston College 84-72. to Figured perhaps they would get a little bit of a boost with Mike Bray announcing that this would be his final year. You'd see guys fighting for him and said they'd let Boston College go. 11 of 19 from three-point range. Boston College team that entered into the day shooting sub-30% from three. Quinton Post, 29 points, 14 rebounds. Makai Ashton Langford, 20 points. He goes 4 of 8 from three-point range. And for Notre Dame, Nate Lashevsky's 29 points on 7 of 9 three-point shooting goes completely in vain because Boston College was able to win the rebound battle by a count of 30 to 25 and just completely pummeled this Notre Dame team. UW-Green Bay has been one of your worst cover teams all season long, and they played one of the worst games that you're going to find of the day. They were trailing Robert Morris at the half, 19-14, and then in the second half, they got destroyed, 72-38. UW-Green Bay loses. Once again, why was Link Darner fired? The world may never know, as Robert Morris shoots 50% from the floor, and UW-Green Bay 
They shot 2 of 21 from 3 and 11 of 51 from the field. They had 11 made buckets and they had 15 turnovers. They lost the rebound battle 42 to 23. Just absolute sadness right now for UW-Green Bay. Also sadness for New Mexico State. New Mexico State honestly looked halfway decent towards the beginning part of the season. You may recall they had the off-the-court tragedy with the whole gun shooting situation with Mike Peake and company. We're not going to dive into that, but what we are going to dive into is that this team is not covering spreads. They're now 5-12 against the spread. They lose against Utah Tech 89-76. to This was right around a 1.5 point line, and New Mexico State was never really in it from the start. They did have off the bench an 8-12 of shooting performance from Anthony Roy as he chipped in their 20 points, and Utah Tech they shoot 52% from the floor, 11 of 25 from three-point range. Noah Gonzalez, along with Isaiah Pope, they both give you 25-plus points apiece. So that was an absolute curb-stomping. Mississippi State has been one of your best teams of the under. They lose, but they were able to get you that under 61-59, to the final in this one. As this game came to a relative screeching halt as this was a contest in which it was 60-50 to with about four minutes remaining and get 10 points the final four minutes to be able to get that under Colin Castleton he's been doing good work for a Florida team that they themselves have been playing quite a few unders recently he chips in their 13 points he was able to give the team a block down low in a game that was very very grimy and just gross in general if you want another bad cover team that'd be Eastern Michigan and for Eastern Michigan, a less than savory performance for them against Northern Illinois. Northern Illinois puts up an 88 spot. 88-67. to 67. And you get the job done as you did have Imani Bates in this one. Scored just 7 points in 18 minutes as for Eastern Michigan, they have 15 turnovers and 22 made buckets. And for Northern Illinois, a bad offensive team. David Coit had 24 points on 5 of 9 three-point shooting, and they shot 59% from the floor. Good gosh almighty. That is not good. For Monmouth, good gosh almighty. They lost at home to Hampton, 83-66. to First time Monmouth has broken the 57-point plateau this calendar year, but they still went 2 of 19 from 3-point range. Only reason why they got to 66 points is because there were just so many possessions in the game. For Hampton, they go 10 of 19 from 3-point range, and they shoot horribly from 3-point range. So just a really, really sad state of affairs over there. Been a sad state of affairs as well if you have been a fan of the South Dakota Coyotes, they get the win and cover, though, over Omaha, 84-68 to to be able to improve to 5-13 and against the spread. And for the Tulsa Golden Hurricane, they entered into the day with the worst cover rate in all of college basketball. Now that moniker belongs to our good friends Notre Dame as Tulsa at home. They get it done against Tulane by a count of 81-79 to in overtime as Sam Griffin... Had 22 shot attempts and 23 points. Tim Dalger, along with Bryant Salabongue, were able to combine for 25 rebounds. As Tulane actually wins the rebound battle by kind of 43 to 40, but for Tulane, they also went 7 to 25 from three-point range. Jalen Cook, Jalen Forbes, between the two of them, went 1 of 11 from three-point range, and they went 9 of 31 from the floor for 31 points. He also had Cook turn the ball over six times in this game, so. That was less than terrific. And if you want less than terrific, how about if we go to one of the worst total beats that you're ever going to find? Yep, we're going to have to bring it up right about now. Dayton versus George Washington. 
George Washington gets the job done by kind of 76 to 69, but I point your attention to the total. A lot of places it closed right around 139. It might have been a little bit more. It might have been a little bit less, but we're going to use this arbitrary number. There were 109 points on the board with a buck 58 remaining. And if you want to get a little bit more exact, with 109 remaining, there were 114 points on the board. 29 points in the final 59 seconds. Unflippin' believable. Now, Dayton, they were just pummeled in this game throughout. They didn't make any threes until the final, like, 90 seconds of this game as they go 8-27 from three-point range. Malachi Smith, Kobe Elvis, they're back at the fold. They were able to combine for 20 points. They combined for 34 minutes. And for George Washington, they carved up Dayton in this one and actually won the rebound battle 39-35. to You don't see that against Dayton very often. James Bishop, the fourth, 27 points. But, I mean, if you had that total, thoughts and prayers to you. That is really, really bad. This is also really bad if you're a fan of Central Florida, a team that's pretty bubble-licious. They lose to South Florida 85-72. to But what is pretty awesome is Tyler Harris, 33 points. He goes 6 of 14 from three-point range. Russell Chaywa down low, 12 rebounds. And for Central Florida, you tell that this team is missing really their ringleader in Darius Johnson in the backcourt, who's been out of the fold the last few games. They go 8 of 22 from three-point range, but that defensive pop that they had towards the beginning of the season, not really there in this one. Your top team in terms of straight-up wins is the College of Charleston. College of Charleston has also been a relatively good cover team as well. They take down Northeastern. 87 to 61. And this Northeastern team went 8 of 28 from three point range. They shot 35% from the floor. They lost a turnover battle by a count of 17 to 14. They lost a rebound battle 46 to 38. And for Charleston, they didn't have a single guy exceed 15 points in this game. Just once again, that nine man rotation just sucking the life out of you. So a relatively good result there for the College of Charleston. This was also a relatively solid result as well as you've had Utah Valley all season long be a good cover team. They take down Grand Canyon on the road by kind of 76 to 74. Utah Valley was about a three-point underdog. They were trailing throughout in this one, but Latre Dothart, he contributes 25 points for a Utah Valley team that only shoot about 311 from three-point range in this one, but where they won this game, they were able to do a very solid job in terms of the turnover battle, winning that by a count of 13 to 8. Rayshon Harrison, 18 points once again for Grand Canyon. He's had at least 16 points, I believe, in like 10 straight games. He has been very good, but that said, for Utah Valley, also having Trey Woodbury go for 19 points, 6 boards, 6 assists. He completely filled it up. So another quality cover for Utah Tech. How about Marquette being able to go on the road? They completely just down Seton Hall, 74 to 63. They are now 14, 6, and 1 against the spread, and they've been making you some good solid coin for Seton Hall. Kadari Richmond was the only guy that could really get into double figures. He had 10 points as Seton Hall had 37 shot attempts and 26 turnovers. That's just absolutely insane. Marquette was creating more turnovers than Sarah Lee's bakery in this game. And for seeing all, they actually won the rebound battle by kind of 26 to 23. But that's just because Marquette was shooting a little bit over 50% from the floor. They themselves had 17 turnovers. Came Jones, 22 big points in this one. So that was a very, very interesting result, to say the least. We've been getting just interesting results all throughout in college basketball, but it has been a very interesting 
to take a look at what we've been getting out of this Cornell team, but they, on this day, weren't able to get it done against Harvard. Harvard, they were able to get the W by a count of 95-89. to 89. Cornell closed in this game as about a one-point favorite, depending upon where you look. But for Harvard, a team that has not been able to get anything going on offense, they go 10 of 18 from three-point range. They shoot 60% from the floor. That is the Achilles heel of this Cornell team. They aren't necessarily a great defensive team. And for Cornell, they lose this game despite going 14 of 33 from three-point range. So could be interesting to take a look at them moving forward. In terms of our top under team in college basketball, we're actually going to be seeing the Merry Men of Merrimack on display on Sunday. So unfortunately, we were unable to see them up close and in person. But that said, the top over team in all of college basketball, they were going up against the slowest team in college basketball. And by that, I mean UAB against North Texas. And it was a slow team that won out. North Texas, they get the win and they get the under, 63-52. to Now, Jolly Walker saw the fold for UAB. It hasn't really slowed them down too much, but they just were unable to get anything going. North Texas stuck UAB in the mud, and for North Texas, they go 8 of 17 from three-point range, having Kai Hudsbury go for 19 points to be able to support Tyler Perry, and for UAB, 1 of 10 from three-point range. They get off just 47 shot attempts, despite just 13 turnovers. Trey Jemison, 14 points, 11 rebounds, but really nobody else could do anything in this game, so it was a very intriguing one to say the least. One of your other top teams in all of college basketball, both in terms of cover eight, as they're in the top 20 in all of college basketball in terms of cover eight, and they're your second best over team. That would be the Stetson Hatters. They have been shooting it really, really well from three-point range, and that continued against Jacksonville State. Line was five. They win by six as Stetson, they just led throughout in this game, 87-81. to 81. Stetson is a bottom 30 team in terms of possessions per game, by the way. They just shoot it really well. 11 of 29 from three-point range. You had 25 big points out of Jalen Blackman in this one. And Jacksonville State, they went 11 of 28 from three-point range as well. So it has been happy action, fun time for them. How the mighty have fallen on this front as UNLV, they were going up against one of the worst cover eight teams in all of college basketball in Fresno State. And Fresno State, they were able to get them for the win and the cover, 76-63. Now for UNLV, they are one of your better over teams in all of college basketball, 13-5 and to the over this season. And Fresno State, they have covered fewer than 35% of their games. But for Fresno State, 9 of 19 from three-point range. The UNLV defense that was very rough and very strong to begin the season. It is no longer that as they gave up 28 points to Isaiah Hill. And you also had Eduardo Andre 3000, 16 points, 13 rebounds. This was a Fresno State team that was all sorts of banged up without pretty much two other top four scores. And yet UNLV still lost by 15 on the road. So that was not necessarily a ringing endorsement. I brought up Xavier a little bit earlier. They're now actually 14-5-1 against the spread. And your top under team in all of college basketball outside of Merrimack, that would be the Nebraska Cornhuskers. But the Cornhuskers, they played a relatively high-scoring game against the Penn State team that all season long, their results have been very fascinating to gauge as you had Penn State get the win, get the cover by a count of 76-65. This is a total that closed at 134.5. So you get an over on this one on the Nebraska team as 
Four overs, 15 unders, and one push as far as the season. Mississippi State, by the way, five overs, 14 unders. I was mentioning them a little bit earlier. And for Nebraska, they did have Derek Walker go for 20 points, six boards, six assists. But can we get a little bit of love for Jalen Pickett? Another double-double, 12 points, 13 rebounds, five assists. And Andrew Funk, he brought the funk. Thir- 23 points. He goes five of 10 from three-point range. So you have a cash yet another one with Penn State, and then we also saw Yale, who going into this game, they were a little bit broken on defense. They had played overs in two out of their last three games. Overall, they have played five overs, 11 unders, and a push. They got back to their defensive roots. They gave up 38 points in the first half, but just 25 in the second half. They cover the six-half point line. They get the under 70-63 to the final. They take down Penn, who's got Jordan Dingle as one of the top scorers in all of college basketball. Dingle got his with 27 points, but for Yale, they did a good job pounding the glass. They were able to win the offensive rebound battle by a count of 12-8. to And for E.J. Darvis, he was able to have a double-double, 14 points, 10 rebounds. So a very significant result for Yale. And if you're looking at the landscape of college basketball, Home underdogs are having a relatively rough go of it right now. Over the last seven days, home underdogs 47, 62, and 7 against the spread. That's right around a 43% clip. We're seeing the unders come back. We saw a big binge of overs the previous seven days, but now we've got 169 overs to 175 unders. So right around 51% of games have been going under the total and road teams. Over the last seven days, they are covering 54.8% of games. If you're looking at the entirety of the college basketball season, home teams, they've been covering at about 50.6%, and underdogs overall 51.1%. Home underdogs still for the year have been solved 44, 428, and 18 against the spread. But last seven days, it has been relatively bad. If you want another home underdog that was unable to get there, that'd be LSU. They got completely dump trucked by a Tennessee team that their offense has been a little bit up and down, but we're going to be talking a little bit more about the SEC in the next segment with our good friend Blake Lovell. Feels like Tennessee has really ascended to be that number two slash number three team with an Auburn team that they, as a big road favorite, were able to win and cover against South Carolina. But that said, if you're looking at the entirety of the college basketball season, 1,672 overs to 1,638 under. So that's what we saw in college basketball on Saturday, and that's what we're seeing trend-wise in the sport. Coming up next, we are going to be talking about the SEC with our good friend Blake Lovell over there at Southeastern 14. Also going to be taking a look at the landscape of college basketball, who deserves to be number one, and a few games for Sunday. That's on the flip side here on Coast Coast East with myself, Brady Spears, and now a part of the Family Podcast. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith. When I'm not at my day job, first tape, you can find me in my studio hosting the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, at the very least, as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and politics. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions on those nauseating cowboy fans, the chaos in Washington, D.C., and trending topics on social media, as well as my straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. And I occasionally give out love advice. Yes, it's true. If you want to know my true feelings about something, I'll give it to you straight. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. 
I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slammed up. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith. When I'm not at my day job, first tape, you can find me in my studio hosting the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, at the very least, as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and politics. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions on those nauseating cowboy fans, the chaos in Washington, D.C., and trending topics on social media, as well as my straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. And I occasionally give out love advice. Yes, it's true. If you want to know my true feelings about something, I'll give it to you straight. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley, and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slammed up. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Are you ready to become a winning sports better? Schedule a call with SBIA to find out how their service can make you a long-term winning player. They've developed an innovative algorithm that maximizes units return, and they are so confident in their system that they offer a money-back guarantee. Sign up by October 31st and get their NBA package at no cost until they reach 10 net units. They treat sports betting like a business. So if you want to learn how to make your sports betting dreams a reality, visit them at SBIA1.com and check them out on social media at SBIA Sports. Las Vegas, we're with myself, Greg Hoops Peters, and now a part of the Beeson family, a podcast. 
It is great to be joined by our guest as Blake Lovell does amazing work covering the game of college basketball. He does a tremendous job with Blue Ribbon Yearbook as one of their main editors over there. He is over at Southeastern 14, day in and day out, taking a look at everything that we're getting in the SEC. But on top of that, does a great job of really covering the whole landscape of college basketball. As you're able to follow him on Twitter at the Blake Lovell, I say it's spelled L-O-V-E-L-L all together. And Blake, great to have you aboard. Thank you. Oh, thanks as always for having me on, Greg. Thank you for joining me. And Blake, we're doing this Saturday evening. So as it stands right now, Missouri is trailing by double figures against Alabama. Assuming Alabama gets the job done, where would you place them in the hierarchy in terms of teams that deserve to be number one in college basketball? Because I think that that's an interesting discussion point. I personally have Houston number one. They're going to be in action on Sunday against Temple. And they lose to Temple, there would be something greatly wrong there. But in terms of that short list, in terms of teams that are worthy of being number one, I would have Houston and Alabama, a pair of teams that, ironically enough, matching up against one another as really those top two teams. I kind of look at it, Greg. I mean, at this point, I think given what happened to Kansas in that game against TCU, I think it's if you're making the argument, I feel like it's got to be Houston, it's got to be Alabama, it's got to be Purdue. And I think, you know, if you're making the argument for Houston, again, the full picture, you sort of look at what they've done this season and you just kind of understand that they are a team, you know, that's done a lot of great things and, you know, kind of has just put itself in a position to, be sitting here in this discussion. But at the same time, if you're Alabama and you're wanting to put the argument in favor of Alabama, you can also use the example of winning a game at Houston, looking at, again, the way Alabama's played. I don't know how the Missouri game's going to unfold just yet, but they've won every SEC game by double figures. Their two losses came against the Zags, which, you know, I think, you know, Gonzaga's loss at home, that starts to maybe knock perception a little bit of where they are, but we know that's still a really good team. And they were certainly playing a really good UConn team at the time. Maybe not exactly where they want to be just yet. But honestly, Greg, I think it comes down to one of those two for me. I would probably say it's either Houston or Alabama, but I also don't want to take anything away from Purdue because obviously that's a great team. And with Zach Eady and what he can do, I mean, that Purdue team's going to go on and win a lot of games the rest of the way too. They're sitting here, what, 18-1 right now. I think you can probably make the case for one of those three teams and go pretty strongly you know, in your argument just given, I think, how good those three have been to this point. Absolutely. And I felt like you could have made a little bit of an argument for UCLA if they would have taken down Arizona on Saturday. That clearly was not the case out there. And in terms of the SEC, it is so interesting to take a look because for the SEC, you do have that team that's starting to separate itself from the rest of Alabama, in my opinion, though. You've got Tennessee sitting there at 6-1. and one. They completely jump-trucked an LSU team that it was looking solid for them about three weeks ago. But, man. Things have went very sour for LSU. Auburn, they're currently sitting there at 6-1 and one as well, but it feels like there's a big, giant middle in the SEC right now with teams like Missouri, Florida, Kentucky, Texas A&M. list goes on and on. I'm not sure what you're making out of the conference right now, but I feel like Alabama and Tennessee have separated themselves. I'd be willing to make Auburn that clear number three team, and then after that, You've just got a big, giant middle with this conference. Yeah, and I think really, certainly once the season's over, we'll have a much clearer picture of how things unfolded. But I think right now, like you said, I don't think there's as many good teams at the top, meaning I don't. there's not a, as many number of teams that we thought there would be maybe you know leading the way in the SEC. Because I'm kind of with you. I think there's three teams, Alabama, Tennessee, and Auburn. And then I think there's, there's a drop-off in terms of just the quality that you're getting. And quite honestly, I think, again, I don't want to take anything away 
from any of these teams, but it's like you go beyond Alabama, Tennessee, Auburn. I think it's trying to figure out who that next team is. Because, I mean, look, Kentucky's playing better now, right? And, and maybe they finally turn the corner. I think you can certainly make the argument that they're probably that team that sits right there. But, you know, I think there's also some validity to what A&M has done. And losing a tough road game in Kentucky is not exactly going to make people change their opinions fully on A&M. They just need more good wins. I think to sort of figure it out. And then you've got that interesting group of teams like a Missouri. Look, Florida is starting to play better, but are they going to get to that point where they were? And I think you've got probably the, the, the biggest unknown the rest of the season for me, Greg, outside of maybe just the teams at the bottom. But it's like Arkansas is one of those teams that I don't think Arkansas is bad as their two and five SEC record. How many years in a row have we said that? Like, I feel like we've said that multiple years now in a row where they have a bad start, but then they make their run. When you look at the schedule, they really have the opportunity to make that same run here over the next three or four games. And I think they will wind up getting their way back into that conversation. Certainly would help if Nick Smith plays this season, although right now we have no idea. Yeah, I don't think the SEC is as strong in terms of the top tier teams. You know, maybe having five or more teams that we maybe thought, hey, those are sweet 16 type teams, which you could still kind of put that number there. But I think you're, you're doing it more uncertainty and certainty at this point, because really outside of Alabama, Tennessee, and Auburn, I just think everyone else is kind of hard to trust. Yep, I agree with you there. And I want to talk about a team that has had me having some trust issues, but you know what? They're starting to rise back up as joining me on the podcast. We do have Blake Lovell, and that would be Kentucky. I feel like a turning point in their season was that second half against Georgia because they were down eight at the half against them. It wasn't looking good. They pull away in the second half. They win by double figures. Oscar Shibway has that absolutely amazing game. And against Texas A&M, it was another game where in the first half, really the first 30 minutes, less than impressive, but they were able to pull away late. They were able to get the win. For my side of things, they were able to make me money with the cover. So I am feeling a little bit better about Kentucky. But does it feel like things are getting righted with Kentucky? Because it feels like they're starting to find their blend of guys that they're able to trust, and it really doesn't involve Savir Wheeler. Well, and you said it, and I think that's it. And, and I, I keep making this point. We should probably use it in the context. And look, Kentucky fans, as we know, Greg, they have a strong opinion about their basketball team, and, and they will have strong feelings one way or the other about what they should and shouldn't be doing. But Savir Wheeler is not a bad player. But I think for what this team did, this team needs with the way it is structured, and how Cal wants to play with this team. I don't think that involves, you know, everything primarily running through Severe Wheeler and him being the primary ball handler in all these scenarios. I think it's very clear that has to be Casey Wallace. And now that they are doing that, and that shift has happened over the last, what, three games now, they look a lot better on the offensive end of the floor. And I don't think that's just a mistake. I think it's just something that it always needed to get to this point. And, you know, something else I can remember, like many others, bringing up early in the season. You know, it's not a bad idea to, you know, have a C.J. Frederick and Antonio Reeves maybe out there together a little bit more because all that does is give you two guys that can shoot the three consistently. And, look, they're not going to have I mean, Frederick went about 2 of 10 or something, I think, from three in this game against A&M. But, you know, Reeves goes 5 of 11. I mean, hey, combine that together, you'll take 33%. Because in all honesty, in the SEC, that's above average. Uh, because it's not a great shooting league. So I think when you look at it from that standpoint, that's what this team has to do to win. Because, you know, again, they beat an A&M team that I think is still pretty good, despite some people may not be full believers in them just based on what their schedule's been. But they beat A&M with Oscar Sheewey only scoring seven, you know, getting in foul trouble. They have now have more guys that can step up, and I think it's because of how they're playing offense. 
And one of the other things that I don't think was talked about enough was when Kentucky was struggling in these big games, it wasn't just their offense. Their defense was slipping big time. The teams that Cal's had in the past that maybe have not met their expectations on the offensive end, they've still been able to figure it out defensively and still kind of propel them forward. This team was really struggling with that, as we saw, even going back to the South Carolina game. But since then, they're playing a lot better on the defensive end of the floor. So when you combine those two things together, I tell you, this Kentucky team, I feel like, has kind of turned that corner. And I think the statement probably came against an A&M team that really came in there, played a type of style that I don't think Kentucky loved. But yet Kentucky's still able to find a way to win. But I will say this, Greg, Kentucky's next two games are very interesting because they go to Vanderbilt on Tuesday. And as we know, Vanderbilt is starting to play better, too, even though they're out. Liam Robbins, I think Lee Dort's out now with an injury. So two of their big guys are out for a while, but this is still a hard-nosed Vanderbilt team that I think will give Kentucky all they can handle. Then the Cats come back home and play Kansas next Saturday. So it'll be interesting to see how kind of how they approach both those games, given where they are right now. And I'm so glad that you brought up Vanderbilt, because one of the most interesting results that we saw on Saturday was Georgia losing to Vanderbilt as well. You're based out there in Nashville, Tennessee. What do you make out of both of these teams? Because I just mentioned it with Kentucky. I felt like a big turning point for them was being able to take down Georgia, come back in the second half. Was that maybe a turning point for the negative for Georgia? And what do we make out of Vanderbilt without having Liam Robbins? Because I thought that that was going to be a little bit rough for them. They come out night number one. They're able to get the win. I don't know how to evaluate them moving forward because typically you have sort of that fallen man theory in game number one, game number two. But if they're able to maintain for a while without Liam Robbins, that's going to be very interesting. Yeah, I tell you, on the Georgia side of things, I feel like it's probably the first game you're, you're disappointed in this season. And, of course, they've had five other losses. But I think those were games that were going to be tight or you were going to be the underdog. I feel like this one's a little disappointing because to this point, look, I mean, they had taken care of their business at home in SEC play. They had beaten Auburn. They had beaten Mississippi State. But then I think to lose this game, it has to be considered a disappointment because, you know, again, and think about that, right, Greg? This is considered a disappointment that Georgia moves to 13-6 and six and 3-3 three and three in the SEC, whereas last year we kind of saw the trajectory of the program where it got to, right, 6-26. and 26. It's good that Mike White's gotten them to a point where they can be disappointed because that's exactly what's happened this season. But I do think it was one that, yes, you have to because here's the problem for Georgia, and we kind of talked about this for a couple of weeks, the schedule. They're at Tennessee. They get South Carolina at home in there. So, I mean, by all measures, that should be a, a, an easy win given the way South Carolina's playing. But their next three SEC road games at Tennessee, at Auburn, at A&M, those are all very, very tough games to win. And so that's why I thought this one was so important for Georgia. But on the flip side, Vanderbilt is like the ultimate. This game is going to be close. You could put, I don't even know who, Greg. I mean, I don't I don't follow the NBA that much anymore. But like you could put the Golden State Warriors out there. And I promise you, Vanderbilt somehow finds a way to make this like a 10-point or less type <laughs> game. Because it's just what they do, right? And I think that's just kind of been the theme this season. Whether Robbins has been in there. You know, whether they've had some injuries, guys aren't playing well, it just seems like they always play close, no matter the opponent. You know, they played well at Tennessee. The Alabama game got a little out of hand there for a while, but they're able to push back, make it a 12-point game at the end. So I think you look at them, it is a very interesting spot because I don't feel like they're not a team that's bad enough to just get blown out, I think, by anybody. But at the same time, you know, it's like I feel like the games they have to win are probably going to be very close games. Even the Arkansas one, right? It's a little deceiving, a 13-point win last weekend. But I just feel like they're always going to be there, though, because Jerry Stackhouse does a really good job putting his guys in the right position. They are now starting to make those plays in some of these big games. But without Robbins, 
that's where I think the Kentucky matchup is very interesting because an Oscar Sheeway with Liam Robbins on the floor feels like it's a little more manageable. But now you take Robbins out, you take Dort out of the mix. That's where the matchup could kind of get you, I think, against Kentucky. No question about it. I think that that is going to be such an intriguing game as joining me on the podcast. We do have Blake Lovell does a great job over at Southeastern 14. And Blake, when it comes to what we're all going to be getting on Sunday, no question about it, a big fall off in games compared to Saturday. I was tweeting about this. You've got in a two-game stretch between Saturday and Sunday, right in the neighborhood of about 165 or so games. And, of course, you've got 144 of them on Saturday. It's sort of like, man, it's a little bit unbalanced here. But is there anything that you're going to be looking for in terms of the Sunday card? Because I just mentioned it. I do think that Houston is the number one team in all of college basketball. They're going to be facing off with Temple. But I think that there's a couple other intriguing games out there. Furman being out there in action, that's intriguing. And then you also have some very good Big Ten teams that are going to be on the floor as well. Yeah, like you said, a pretty interesting lineup. You would hope Houston takes care of business against Temple. But I, I'll tell you one that I've got my eye on, Greg, and I brought him up earlier is UConn because you know they host Butler. I mean, this is a UConn team that's lost, what, five or six now. They've lost three in a row. I really am curious, you know, to kind of see how this game plays out because certainly, you know, with Butler a little up, up and down themselves and you kind of look at the wins they've gotten thus far in the Big East, what, Georgetown, I think they've beaten Creighton, they've beaten Georgetown, and they've already beaten Butler once, and they've beaten Villanova. It's just interesting, though, right? Like you, Because this was a team, like I said, you go back to that November 25th game against Alabama. I mean, you just think about kind of the run they're on at that point, and then they continue that on for basically another month. But kind of hitting the stretch here where they're losing some games, obviously you felt like got a little bit of momentum back when they beat Creighton there a couple of weeks ago, but – I'm just curious, you know, to see how they bounce back from losing this three in a row. It should be a game they can win. Again, we've already seen them beat Butler by 20-plus points. But I've got my eye on that one just because I want to see kind of what the turnaround looks like for the Huskies there. Yep, I've got my eye on that one as well for UConn. We see it every year where there's like one or two teams that they start out strong and they go down the toilet bowl. Typically, it's not to this extreme, though, losing at home to St. John's. I mean, my goodness, things are not looking great there. Certainly not looking as great as things always look for you, Blake, because you do absolutely amazing work taking a look at the great game of college basketball over there at Southeast from 14. You're based out there in Nashville, Tennessee, doing a great job holding it down. I know that you do just a lot of different things in terms of the sport that we all know and love. So a lot of the good people at home know they're able to follow you on social media and just what's all on tap for you. Yep, always appreciate it, Greg. Like you said, the, all the SEC stuff, you can find that at southeastern14.com on YouTube, Southeastern 14. All kinds of videos kind of breaking down the, the college basketball season and the, the angle of the SEC, so you can find all that there. And, uh, yeah, everything else, you can follow me on Twitter at the Blake Bubble. Blake does amazing work taking a look at college basketball. When it comes to the offseason, he's working hard over there at Blue Ribbon Yearbook. When he's in season, he's over there at Southeastern 14 doing a great job taking a look at everything that we're getting out there in terms of these great teams, especially the ones out in the SEC. And it's always great to get his insights on the podcast. Big thanks, Blake, for joining me on Coast to Coast. He's part of the Visa family of podcasts. Coming up next, it is that time of the podcast to give you a fix and analysis on every game on the betting board for this college basketball Sunday as we hit some big shots. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith. When I'm not at my day job, first tape. You can find me in my studio hosting the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and politics. 
you'll hear my unfiltered opinions on those nauseating cowboy fans, the chaos in Washington, D.C., and trending topics on social media, as well as my straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. And I occasionally give out love advice. Yes, it's true. If you want to know my true feelings about something, I'll give it to you straight. So, listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley, and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slammed up. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith. When I'm not at my day job, first tape, you can find me in my studio hosting the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, at the very least, as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and politics. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions on those nauseating cowboy fans, the chaos in Washington, D.C., and trending topics on social media, as well as my straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. And I occasionally give out love advice. Yes, it's true. If you want to know my true feelings about something, I'll give it to you straight. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley, and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slam dunk. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith. When I'm not at my day job, first tape, 
You can find me in my studio hosting the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and politics. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions on those nauseating cowboy fans, the chaos in Washington, D.C., and trending topics on social media, as well as my straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. And I occasionally give out love advice. Yes, it's true. If you want to know my true feelings about something, I'll give it to you straight. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. And recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slammed up. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry. Back to Iguodala. Up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back here in Las Vegas for Just Guess Hoops with myself, Greg Hoops Peters, and now part of the Beeson Family Podcast. It's always great to get Blake Lovell aboard, who does great work over at Southeastern 14. Does more than just cover the Southeastern Conference, so for those of you guys always getting set for the upcoming college basketball season, does great work over at Blue Ribbon Yearbook, and every single time he joins this podcast, always lends tremendous insights. Big thanks, Blake, for joining me in the last segment. Now it is that time of the podcast. They give you picks and analysis on every game on the betting board for this college basketball Sunday as we hit some bank shots. Most financial establishments close at a certain time, but not here. It is time for a side and total on every game on today's betting board bank shots. Do note that as per usual, any changes that are made to these plays will be listed up on my Twitter feed at GNN underscore D1. Going to be going in the Las Vegas rotation order. This is essentially all the games that are not involving the America East and the Northeastern Conference. Those are going to be at the bottom. Everything else, that is going to be up top. Let's get things rolling with 829-830 on the betting board. Michigan State, it's a road faceoff against Indiana. Indiana is between a 3.5 to a 4-point favorite. In your total on this game, it is between 138 and 138 I'm seeing a random 4.5 popping up as well. And I'm going to be willing to take the points with Michigan State, set them as a 3.5-point underdog. So 4 to 4.5, that is my buy point here. Uh, Michigan State, a team that has really been able to get quite a bit out of Ty Walker recently. He's been able to do a good job closing out games, 14 and a half points. 
He's able to give you two and a half assists, shooting 42.5% from three-point range, going up against an Indiana team that is going to have the best player out there on the floor. That'd be Trace Jackson Davis. There's no if, fans or buts about it. With TJD, he's been able to contribute 18.5 points, 9.5 boards, 3.5 assists, 3 blocks. Just a human stat sheet suffer coming off of a 35-point performance a few days ago. But it's an Indiana team that has been dealing with injuries to Xavier Johnson along Thrace Thompson. So that's a little bit of an issue. Jalen Shafino is doing a good job running the show. 13 points, 4.5 boards, 4.5 assists, steal per game. She's 44% from three for an Indiana team that does shoot 37% from distance, but I was expecting this Indiana team to be a little bit better on defense. It's not like they're a flaming dumpster fire or anything like that on defense, but still, they are a team that's outside the top 50 in terms of points allowed on a per-possession basis. They are going up against a Michigan State team that they always leave something to be desired in terms of the turnovers that they force. Michigan State, overall for the season in terms of points allowed on a per-possession basis, they're hovering more around 89th, but with Michigan State, you do have A.J. Hogard. Does a good job doling out the ball. 12.5 points, 6.3 assists, and then Joy Houser has been able to launch from three at about 41%, 13 half points per contest. Malik Hall has been a little bit banged up, so that's an issue, but Jaden Akins has been able to help out as well. This is a Michigan State team that they're going to lose battle down low, but I do think that their backcourt keeps them in this game, and you've got a Michigan State squad that they've really improved on defense, giving up 65 points or fewer in all but one game since the turn of the new year, so a circumstance where I have four or more, I'm going to be willing to take the points with Michigan State. Michigan State, a team well outside the top 200 in terms of total possessions per game, and Indiana, They've given up fewer than 70 points in their last two games as well. Semi-12, 137.5, early tip time, willing to dive under on the 138, and willing to take four more with Michigan State, 831, 832 on the big board. Butler, it's a road to face off against UConn. This is going to be the DK Nation pick. With UConn, they're between a 14 to a 15-point favorite, and your total on this game, it is 137.5. I set my line at 12. I'm going to be willing to take the points with Butler. That is going to be the DK Nation pick because with Butler, last time these two teams played, Butler did lose that game, and they lost that game convincingly, 68-46, to but this was not a healthy Butler team at the time. They had just gotten back a pair of guys in Jalen Thomas along with Ali Ali. They combined for 16 minutes and 6 points in that affair. Out of these two guys, you've been able to get a combined 15 points ever since then, and ever since that UConn game, they've been combining to be able to give you about 30 minutes per contest apiece. So, these are big-time pieces. Butler has been dealing with an injury to Manny Bates, but it's looking like he should be able to go. It's not confirmed quite yet, but he's missed the last two games, and he's a leader in rebounds and blocks, 12.5 points, 5.9 rebounds, 1.9 blocks per contest. That's important because they're going up against a UConn team that ranks in the top 10 nationally in terms of rebound rate, but it's a UConn team that they failed to get past the 70-point plateau in three of their last five games. They're riding a losing streak of five of their last six. Adama Sanogo does make this thing a go-go. He's been able to give the team 17 points per contest. Jordan Hawkins ships in there above 15 per game as well. They combine for two seals. Both of these gentlemen ship between 37.9 and 40% from three-part range. And then Alex Caravan has been able to chip in there 10 points per game. But really what the issue is for this UConn team has been the guard play because the guard play just has not been too stellar. You do have Joey Calcaterra who's able to knock down threes, but he only gives you right around six and a half points while he's knocking down those 44% threes. You got Tristan Newton, nine points, four boards, four assists. Yeah, that's relatively solid, but you could use a little bit more out of someone like Nahima Aleem. Meanwhile, for Butler, Simeus Lucatius. 
good versatility. 11.5 points, 4 boards, 3 assists, steal per contest, shoots 42.5% from 3-point range. You get 12.2 and 12.3 points per game, respectively, out of Jan- Jaden Taylor and Chuck Harris, who have been able to both shoot about 34.5 to 36.5% from 3-point range as well. And it's a other team that they shoot as a collective, 35.5% from 3. They don't beat themselves with 11.8 turnovers per game. It is a Butler defense that they leave a little bit of something to be desired in terms of points a lot on a purpose basis. They're not a top 20 unit like this UConn team is. They're clocking in more in that pocket about a hundredth, but they honestly don't travel too badly, giving up about four and a half points more per one earned possessions when they're on the road rather than at home. And though the last time these two teams played, UConn got the job done by 22 points. It took a 20 to 4 run in the final 730 or so to be able to get that differential. Prior to that, it was a little bit of a nip and tuck single digit game. And I do think that Butler, a team that's 236th in the country in terms of total possessions per game, they're going to be able to make this a little bit more slow and I do think that it's going to be a struggle for UConn to be able to get past 70 points in this game and I think that Butler could do their part get right around 60 or so points so my DK Nation write-up it is going to be taking the points with Butler set them as a 12 point underdog did make my total 138 I do think that you get a little bit more scoring in this game I think that UConn going to be looking to launch your offense as well so a circumstance where I'm taking a look at this total over and the DK Nation write-up taking the points with Butler 833 34 on the betting board. Michigan is going to be playing us Minnesota. Minnesota is a underdog of 12 and a half and 13 points and your total on this game. It is between 137 and a half and 138. Set my total out of 133. I'm going to be one to dive under. You've got a Michigan team that all of a sudden they've actually been able to play some defense. I recognize that the game against Iowa went to overtime and that was very, very unsavory to say the least, but you take a look at things and they have allowed fewer than 70 points and now 5 out of the last 7 games and I believe that you can go six out of your last eight as well. And they're going up against the Minnesota team that, yes, they were able to get the job done. They were able to knock off Ohio State and they were able to give a good effort losing by three against Wisconsin. You just take a look at things and in terms of games that have not rendered in regulation, so that throws out the overtime game that they had against Nebraska. They have been able to exceed the 70-point plateau once in their last... 15 games. I mean, it's just not great for this Minnesota offense. They are coming off of scoring 39 points against Purdue. You do have Dawson Garcia, 15.6 at boards. He's been rock solid. Jameson Battle's able to chip in their 12, but this backcourt is just terrible. Taylon Cooper, he's a really lone man in the backcourt. 10.5 points, 4.2 rebounds, 5.8 assists, a steal, a block per contest while shooting 55% from three for a Minnesota team that shoots 59.3% at the free the line 32.5% from three. Now, they didn't get to 70 the last time they played Michigan. Problem was, they gave up 85 to a Michigan team that I mean, they're not necessarily playing at warp speed. It's not a super slow Michigan team. They're right around about 125th in terms of possessions per game. Minnesota, they like to slow it down a little bit more, 270th in terms of possessions per game, but they had no answer whatsoever for Arner Dickinson, who's been able to register about 18 points, 9 boards. He gives you a block and a half per game. Shoots a high 30s from three-point range. 
Last time these two teams hooked up, he had 19 points in that game and what really doomed this Michigan team the last time they played against Michigan. It was just after the Jalen Llewellyn injury is that they gave up 14 to 15 points apiece to Doug McDaniel, Kobe Bufkin, and Jed Howard. And Howard, he's really been on one recently. 15 and a half points, 6 foot 9 combo player that has been able to score at least 13 points before the last five games, shooting 39% from three-point range. McDaniel has done a good job of being able to dish out the ball. Four plus assists in each of the last five games and six out of his last seven so he has done a great job for a Michigan team that they only turned the ball over about ten times for contest. This is a very efficient Michigan offense. Defense has left a little bit of something to be desired but that has risen up and now they face off against Minnesota team that I think this time around they're going to be able to hold them down much more. That was the first game when they had played previous time without Jalen Llewellyn so they were still in a little bit of transition there. Now they've been able to find their footing set by number at 13 and a half so I'm going to be willing to lay up to 13 with Michigan, seeing the 12 and a half to 13. I'm riding with them. Semi total 133 and a half. So also diving under 835, 836 on the betting board. Purdue is going to be playing us to Maryland. Maryland is an underdog of between 10 and a half and 11 points. Totals between 133 and a half and 134. I said Purdue has a 10 point favorite here, 10 and a half to 11. It is my buy point on Maryland. Maryland's going to have a very difficult time with Giant of the Year, Zach Eady, who has been tremendous this year. 21.3 points, 13 rebounds, 2 2.3 blocks per contest. He's coming off of a pedestrian 12 points and 6 rebounds against Minnesota, but they really didn't need him in that game because Minnesota beat themselves. Meanwhile, you've got a Maryland team that has a pair of guys that are able to give you a combined about 13 rebounds per game. Dante Scott and Julian Reese. Reese is able to give you about 10 points per contest. Scotty chips in there a little bit over 12 points and a block per game. They are not going to stand a chance against Zach Eady. What is going to be very important, Jameer Young being the best guard out there on the floor. 16 points, 5 boards, 3 assists. Doesn't shoot it well from 3 though. Maryland as a collective they shoot 31% from the outside. Maryland a top 50 team in terms of guarding the 3 pointer. Purdue has been very good on defense a lot. This is because well, they're coming off of a game against Minnesota where they just could not throw the ball in the basket but when they're not playing against Minnesota, they're still a good defense. 22nd in the country. Turns points a lot on a per-possession basis. You have to like what you've been able to get out of the freshman backcourt. Braden Smith, Fletcher Lawyer combining for 23 points per game. Smith is able to dole out 4.3 assists. Gives you 5 rebounds at a CO per game. Lawyer is shooting about 37% from the outside. Smith does shoot 45.5% from 3. Just doesn't really take a lot of 3s. You've been able to get Brandon Newman going for about 3 boards, 6.5 points. Shoots in the mid-30s from 3-point range. It's it's just a really effective Purdue team that has been able to do it without scoring a lot of points. They have scored 71 points or fewer in three out of their last six games and really five out of their last eight, but they just continue to tie teams down. They have given up 63 points or fewer in four straight games, and it's a Maryland team that, you know what, points a lot on a per-possession basis. It's not like this is some sort of a supreme defense, but they're still one of the better defenses that you're going to find in the Big Ten and all of college basketballs. Currently, they're clocking in right around 77th with this regard. A game where Purdue is going to be able to win. I think it's going to be pretty handled, but at the same time, Maryland just is hanging within like 8, 10 points throughout because I do think that Jameer Young could be able to keep this team lively 
in this game. So, won't take anything north of 10 with Maryland. Did semi-total 134. I do think that Zach Eady going to do a nice job of gobbling things up down low. And I do think that you've got the possibility of late game falling as well if you get an 8-point game with a minute remaining. So, here at 133.5, it is the max I'm willing to go over on, but I'm willing to go over there, and I'm going to be willing to take anything north of 10 with Maryland. 837, 838 on the betting board. It is Memphis. Say a third face-off against Cincinnati. Yes, we are into Cincinnati, and Cincinnati's a two to two and a half point favorite, and your total is between 151 and a half and 152. And I made Memphis the two point favorite. I'm going to be riding with Memphis on the money line. It is a Tigers bunch, and is starting to leave a little bit of something to be desired on defense. They're now outside the top 55 in terms of points allowed on a per possession basis, as they're going at warp speed, 15th in the country in terms of total possessions per game. And you've got to love what Kendrick Davis is able to do. One of the top point guards in all of God basketball, 5.7 assists, 21 points per game. It's a Memphis team that overall is only shooting about 32% per three, but DeAndre Williams, six foot nine combo player, has done it all. Seal and a half, two and a half assists, 7.6 rebounds, 16.4 points per game, all while shooting 37.5% from three-point range. Alex Lomax is able to give you a little bit over two and a half seals per game as well, and they go up against the Cincinnati team that they've been taking a little bit of a step back with their defense as well, but we got a duo in Landers Nolly along with David Julius. They're combining for 30 points, right around 6.8 assists. Nolly shoots 44% from three-point range, and oh, by the way, Landers Nolly was on Memphis last year, a little bit of a wrench spot. David DeJulius, he's been able to shoot about 38% from three-point range, but I mentioned that revenge spot. It's a revenge spot for his former Memphis teammates as well, and it is a Cincinnati team that's right around 76 in the country. Turns points a lot on a per-possession basis, and for Cincinnati, they've only got one guy that gives you north of five rebounds per game. Victor Lakeen, 12 points, 7.5 rebounds, has been able to chip in there as steal per game, but only 6.3 steals per contest for a Cincinnati team that they're ranking right around one in terms of total possessions per game. Now, the Bearcats have been able to uh, tighten up the screws a little bit more on defense. They've given up north of 70 points just once in their last six games, and that came against Houston when they gave up approximately 72, so that has been much better for them, giving up 72 points or fewer in now seven out of their last eight games, but it's a Memphis team that they've been a little bit more of a rocket ship on offense themselves. You take a look at things, and obviously you've got that double overtime hairbrain game against Central Florida, but that said, this has been a bunch that has been able to get to at least 82 points and now 10 out of their last 12 games. I do think that you're going to be able to get a relatively high-scoring affair. I did set my total at 153, so taking a look at this total at 151.5, 152, I'm going to be willing to go over. Guys like uh, Elijah McCaden, Lomax, who I mentioned before, Keandre Kennedy, who's been able to chip in there eight and a half points per game. They've all been very solid contributors. I think that you get a little bit more out of them than the ancillary pieces of Cincinnati, like a Mike Adams-Woods, who's been able to give you nine points. Shoots well from three-point range, but at the same time, I think that Memphis, they just have more athleticism, more sort of physicality in general as well. So, did set Memphis as a two-point favorite. Will not take them on the money line as an underdog? Made by total 153. So, also diving under. 839, 840 on the betting board. St. Peter's is going to be playing us in Niagara. Niagara is an underdog of between one and a half and two and a half points. Your total on this game, it is 119 and a half. And I set my total at a 119 and a half. So, we're going to be taking a look to see where this moves from here. As this is a total that it opened up more around 120 and a half, which 120 and a half would be a buy point on the under. And once we get to 120 or greater, it's an under 119 or less. It is a take for me on the over. So that's where I stand in terms of this total. But the reason why is because 
You had a pair of teams that they just aren't playing fast. I mean, Slugs would be a good representation for this game. Both of these teams outside of the top 320 in terms of total possessions per game. And you had a St. Peter's team that has not been able to get past 61 points this entire calendar year. It's been really, really sad to take a look at this offense. And for St. Peter's, last time they've gotten past 70 points, you have to go all the way back to November. Now, Luttrell Reed has been able to be very versatile for this bunch. 5.7 points, 5 boards, 3.8 assists, the only upper contest for a St. Peter's team that shoots 27.5% from three. Isaiah Dasher, Jalen Murray, they're really the lone two guys that are able to shoot threes. And they are the top two scorers for this team, shooting about... 34% from three with 25.5 points per game as a collective. Murray is able to give you 2.6 assists per game as well. But then you take a look at this Tiger Bunch and Noah Thomason. He is going to be the best scorer in this game as he's been able to contribute 18 points, 3.5 boards, 3.5 assists, makes 39.5% of his threes. And then you've got Sam Oreo coupled with Aaron Gray. They combine for about 11.6 rebounds per game. Oreo, 8.5 points. She's 46% for three. Gray, 13.5 points per game himself. And then you've got someone like a Brown transfer. And David Mitchell, that's able to do a good job with the sound ball defending. Only about 4.5 points per game out of him. You get 4.5 points out of Braxton Bayless as well. But he's done a good job of being able to provide some nice, tough defense as well. This is a Niagara team that they've done a rock-solid job with their defense, even though they are riding a four-game losing streak. It's not because they've been getting giving up a whole bushel full of points as last time the Niagara gave up north of 70 points. That was to Iona on December 2nd. So pretty much 10 straight games without allowing more than 70 points. Meanwhile, just a Niagara team that they've been scoring between 64 and 59 points in each other last four games. And if you're looking just sheerly in regulation the last time, this squad has been able to get past 64 points. You have to go all the way back to last year in 2022. So I do think that this is going to be a low-scoring slog, but I think that having Thomason in the full being the top scorer in this game gives Niagara the advantage. I said Niagara as a one-and-a-half-point favorite, so I'm going to be willing to take them as a money line underdog. If we get back to the opener of 120, 120-and-a-half, it's a take for me on the under the moment that we slide below 119 because I do think that there might be some late-game falling in a nip-and-tuck game. That is my buy point on the over. 841-842 on the betting board. You've got Fairfield on the road facing up against Siena. Siena is a favorite of 6.5 points, seeing a straight 6 out there as well. Totals between 134 and 134.5, and with Siena, Southam has a 6-point favorite, so mostly seeing 6.5. 6.5 is my buy point on Fairfield with the Sags. They have been dealing with an injury to their main point guard and Caleb Fields, who for the season has been able to give you 12.5 points, 4 boards, 2 assists per contest, but you still have been able to get some relatively solid production. TJ Long is able give you 7.5 points per contest. Ellen Jenny Rose has been able to chip in there about 2.5 assists per game as well but the big thing for Fairfield that keeps them lively in this game, a man by the name of Supreme Cook. What a good name for a guy that leads the team in scoring 13.3 points, 8.5 boards nearly a block per contest and all of a sudden Jake Wojcik, he's been able to find his scoring double figures and now 3 out of the last 4 games, only averaging 6.8 points per contest after 2 seasons ago more like 12.5 points per game but he is starting to have a little bit of a rise and then for Sienna. This team has actually been really good against the spread with JVM McCollum being the main headliner for a team that is 12-6-1 against the spread. 16.5 points, 4 assists, shooting 37% from 3-point range. He has been able to give the team 13 plus points each of the last 3 games after he was dealing with a little bit of an injury. If you have Jackson Stormo and Jared Billups who combined for 12 rebounds per game down low. Billups is also able to give you about 7.5 points per game. Stormo more around 13-14 to points per game and Sienna is a team. They've been able to shoot about 36% from 3 
They are outside the top 250 in terms of possessions per game. It's a Fairfield team that they're in the bottom 40 in terms of possessions per game. So relatively slow moving teams. But for Sienna, reason why I can't take them to cover this game, despite the fact that they shoot well in a late game following situation. 76.5% at the charity stripe. 13.7 turnovers per game is relatively rough. They don't necessarily have a ton down the line. I think that Supreme Cook is going to be able to win that battle on the glass. So as a result, since Sienna is a six-point favorite, six half or more, my buy point on Fairfield, you've got a Sienna team that has been able to do a relatively okay job on defense recently. It's still right around 200th in terms of points allowed on a per-possession basis. Fairfield, they're in that neighborhood as well, but... When it comes to Siena, 66 points are fierce rendered in each other last five games. you got a Fairfield team that they have not been able to exceed 70 this calendar year. Last time these two teams played, by the way, Siena, they were able to get a 70-61 to win in which you had Siena shoot over 50% from the floor. I went 4 of 9 from 3-point range. They completely got pummeled on the offensive glass, 15-9. to So I do think that with Fairfield, they're going to be able to do a little bit of a better job of holding Siena below 50% shooting. So looking at the under, and I'm willing to take anything north of six with Fairfield. 843-844 on the betting board. Ryder is going to be playing on Manhattan. Manhattan is an underdog of eight to nine points. I'm seeing a straight seven and a half out there as well. Totals between 138 and 138 and a half. Is that Ryder is a nine point favorite? Anything of single digits, pretty much I'm going to be willing to lay it with the Ryder Broncos. They're going to have the best player out there on the floor as they've had Dwight Murray Jr. all season long do a good job of being able to contribute in a variety of ways. 17 points, 3.2 assists, to 1.8 turnovers while being able to pull in their four and a half rebounds, shoots 38% from three-point range with a steal and a half per contest. And down low, you've got Mervyn James with some versatility, 13 points, seven boards, Ajiri Aguamo Johnson. He's been a little bit banged up, but he's been looking a little bit better on the glass. Six plus rebounds in three out of the last five games after last season. He was able to pull in their seven rebounds to go along with eight and a half points per game. It's been a little bit of a fall off this season, but for Man N, you just have a complete fall off with this team as well as they're a mid-tempo team. They're right around 150th in terms of total possessions per game, falling a little bit with just the sheer competition that they're playing out in the Metro Atlantic, but 268th in the country in terms of points allowed on a per-possession basis, and interestingly enough, Manhattan is actually giving up 4.1 points fewer per one earned possessions on the road rather than at home. They've got Samir Stewart and Ann Nelson in the backcourt. They combine for 7.5 assists, 3.4 steals. They give you 15.2 points per game apiece. Stewart is shooting 37% per three, but they combine for 7.4 turnovers per contest. In the very short stint that they had Elijah Buchanan out there, as he's been out for quite a while, he had 3.2 turnovers per game. They just can't hold on to the ball. 14.8 turnovers per game. They shoot 67% at the free line, Josh Roberts, who comes in from St. John's, 12 points, 9.5 boards, 2.3 blocks per contest for Ryder. You still have someone in an Allen Bentrand who's only giving you 7 points per game, but shoots 39% from 3-point range. Ryder, they've been able to rise up a little bit more with their defense, and Ryder has really cranked down their tempo. Typically, this has been one of the faster teams in the Metro Atlantic now. They're right around 275th in terms of total possessions per game. They're actually closer to 300th in the country in terms of possessions per game. So they're actually cranking it down even more. 228th in the country is Ryder. In terms of points allowed on a per-possession basis, but defense has been able to rise up recently, giving up 68 points or fewer in four out of their last five games. Got a man in team that you know what? They've been able to do a little bit better job on defense, giving up 64 points or fewer in three out of their last four games. 
with Van Etten. A little bit of a letdown spot here. They take Iona to overtime. Unable to get the job done there. I do think that this could be a spot where they come up a little bit flat, being that they played in overtime against Iona just 48 hours earlier. So by total 135.5, we just have not seen a lot of offense out of either of these teams. And Manhattan, even though they play a little bit faster, they're very inefficient. So looking at the under, and with Ryder, willing to lay up to 9 with them. 845, 846 on the betting board. It is Quinnipiac playing out to Canisius. Canisius between a 9.5 to a 10-point underdog with your total between 139 and 140. Even though Canisius is a squad that they rank right in the middle of the country in terms of total possessions per game. Quinnipiac closer to 200th in the country in terms of total possessions per game. Neither of these teams is necessarily scoring a lot, and neither of these teams is necessarily giving up a lot of points. For Canisius, all of a sudden, they have given up north of 70 points just once this calendar year, and for Canisius... They have been able to break the 70-point plateau in just two of their games ever since the beginning of the month of December. So that's 12 games in total. Meanwhile, you've got a Quinnipiac team that has allowed 65 points or fewer in each of their last five games. I do think that that's a little bit of a direct reflection, though, of the competition that they played. And Quinnipiac might be the best offense not named Iona in this conference. So I did set my total at 140, sort of banking on a little bit of late game falling because I also did set Quinnipiac as a 10-point favorite. The 9.5 is going to be the absolute max that I'm going to be one to lay with them. Quinnipiac, very surprisingly. 48th in the country in terms of points allowed on a per-possession basis, but they're giving up 4.4 points more per 100 possessions at home rather than on the road. You've got a trio in Matt Blanich, Ike Nikwe, and Desi Jones that have been able to combine for a little bit over 31 points per contest. Nikwe, six boards, shoots 35% per three coming in from Columbia. And then you've got Blanich, who's been able to do a solid job giving the team about four boards per contest. Jones ships in their three and a half assists, a steal per game. Lewis Coatwright has done a good job giving out four assists per game. Paul Ot- is able to give you 7.5 rebounds per game, so you've got some good balance there, and they go up against the Kanisha squad that, even though the recent results have been relatively solid, 273rd in off college basketball and points a lot on a per-possession basis, and they're currently dealing with an injury to their main scorer in Jordan Henderson. Henderson was able to return in that game against Fairfield, so he, after about a four-game absence, had 13 points. Gotta wonder how he's gonna do playing 48 hours later. I think that he's gonna be relatively okay as he and also Taj Savrovsky have been able to combine for about 25 points per contest, but they also combined to shoot about 32% from three-point range. For Canisius, they've been a little bit of victims of bad luck thus far this season, but they do create some of that themselves. 13 turnovers per game. You've got Jameer Moultrie, who's been able to give you 10.5 points. Comes in from Kennesaw State. Goel shooting 40.5% from three-point range in each of your top three scores for Canisius. Shoot at least 84% of the free line. They just don't do a great job down low. Xavier Long, Yako Fritz, they both give you about 5.8 to 6 rebounds per game, and then you've had Bryce Okpo give you 4.7 points, 4 0.6 rebounds per game, but he has fallen completely off the table in terms of his rebounding as he has given the team a combined 15 rebounds in the last five games, so that is going to be an issue for Canisius moving forward. I do think that Quinnipiac, they're going to be able to win from within. I do think that Quinnipiac going to be able to crank up the tempo a little bit more. This is probably the fastest paced game that you're going to get in the Metro Atlantic in quite some time, so a circumstance where I set Quinnipiac as a 10-point favorite one to lay up to 9.5 with them, and I did set my total at a 140. Both of these teams have been tightening up a little bit more with their defense, but I think a big product of that, playing against a bunch of teams that rank like 300th in the country in terms of total possessions per game. Finally, these two teams play against a little bit of faster competition. So, looking at the 139 over, and I'm willing to lay up to 9.5 with Quinnipiac, 847-848 on the betting board. It is Maris. They throw it face off against Mount St. Mary's. So Mount is a four-point favorite with your total between 123 and 124. 
heartbreaking non-cover from Mount St. Mary's a couple days ago as they allowed an opponent to be able to get past really the 67-point plateau for the first time in about eight games. And now they go up against a Marist squad that ranks right around 300th in the country in terms of total possessions per game and a Marist team that they've been able to get past 70 points just twice in their last 12 games. So I am going to be taking a look at another lower total here. I did set my total at 123.5, so 124 my buy point on the under end. With Maris, I did also set them as a five and a half point underdog just because you don't have a lot of guard play for this team. They shoot 32% from three point range. Cam Ferris, who comes in from Robert Morris, he's only giving you seven and a half points, shooting sub 28% from three point range after the last two seasons. He shot 40 plus percent from the outside. Now, Patrick Gardner has really been able to fill it up for Maris. 18 and a half points, six and a half boards, a block. 2.2 steals per game. He's been able to give the team at least 15 points in each of the last five contests. Rebounding has gone a little bit further downhill, but they're looking at him to do a little bit of everything. Meanwhile, you've got a Mount St. Mary's team that they've been able to do a solid job with their defense, and now they've got back in the fold Jalen Benjamin. He, along with their other main guard in Dakota Lafue, have been able to combine for about 27.5 points, 6 assists, they shoot 38.5 to 39.5% respectively from 3-point range, and it's a Mount St. Mary's team that they play at a sales pace. They're right around 300th in terms of total possessions per game in terms of points allowed on a per-possession basis. You know what? They're about 119th. That's relatively solid with Malik Jefferson doing a good job of clogging things up down low. He's been able to give the team seven rebounds per game. Problem is, he's probably not going to be playing in this game, so that means that you need to get more out of George Tinsley, who's been able to give you seven points, six rebounds per game, but that's it for Tinsley. As long as we've been seeing Jefferson out of the fold, he's been able to rise up. Last four games, at least six rebounds in every one of them. Scoring has not really seen much of an uptick without him, but you know what? He's doing his job on the glass. You've also been able to get some good contributions out of someone like a J.D. Codrilia, who's been able to see some more minutes with the injury, and he has given the team six-plus rebounds in each out of the last four games, so I do like what he's able to do for this Mount St. Mary's team. The Mount should be able to play even up with Maris on the glass, and you just flat out with Mount St. Mary's have better guard play with this team with now having Jalen Benjamin back in the fold. They shoot about 73% at the free line for the mound. 13.8 turnovers per game is a little bit unsightly, but this is a Maris team that they are one of the worst teams at allowing three-point shots in all of college basketball. There's three-point shooting defense in the bottom 30 in all of college basketball. So, a circumstance where I did set the mound as a five-and-a-half point favorite and made my total 123-and-a-half. Seeing between 123 and 124, I personally would rather take a 124 under just because I do think that this is going to be a low-scoring slog. I will see where this goes in the AM, but at current numbers looking at the 124 under and willing to lay the points with the amount. 849, 850 on the betting board. Cal is going to be playing us to Oregon State. Oregon State between a 3.5 to a 4-point underdog. Your total is 124.5 and with Cal, I set them as a favorite of 4 points. This is sad, but I'm going to be willing to lay the points with Cal. They've been able to show a little bit more fight recently as it's a Cal squad that ever since they got Dewan Clayton in the fold, you know what? The offense has been able to flow a little bit more. In six games with them, he's been able to give the team 10.2 points, 2.5 assists, shooting 42.5% from three. That is going to go downward. The last time he shot above 28% from three-point range, you have to go back to the 2017-18 season. He's in his I'm not even kidding, your seventh year of college basketball, but you have been able to get a lot more out of Lars Simon recently. 11 points, six boards for him. It is a Cal team that they still only shoot about 31% from three, and Cal is not a team that's going to be looking to blaze it up and down the floor, but neither is Oregon State. Oregon State 
328th in the country in terms of total possessions per game. You had a Cal team that's 344th, and in this recent run, it's not like they've really cranked up their tempo at all, so I do think that you're going to get a relatively slow, methodical game, and both of these teams, despite the fact that they play slow and methodically, are outside the top 250 in terms of points allowed on a per-possession basis, and they don't necessarily take care of the ball. 13.4 turnovers per game for Cal, 13.8 for Oregon State. Oregon State just had Jordan Pope, 12 points per game, shooting 38.5% for three, and that's a whole Oregon State does shoot 33% for three, 75% of the free line, but you really don't have anything down low. Thiamon should be able to win the battle down low because Oregon State has one guy that gives you north of four rebounds for game. Dimitri Rooney comes in from San Francisco, gives you a steal, five rebounds, six and a half points per game at six foot eight. See about pop threes at about a 38% clip. Glenn Taylor Jr., Dexter Cano, they've been able to combine for 21 points. You've got Taylor shooting 35% from three, but Oregon State just has had some less than savory performances recently. Scoring 60 points for fear in three of their last five games. It has also been a squad that has given up at least 67 points in five out of their last six games. Meanwhile, for Cal, at the very least, they've been able to build something on offense north of 70 points in three out of their last five games. Defense has still been relatively okay as well as they've given up 70 points or fewer in two out of those last four games as well. So, a circumstance where I do think that on their home floor, Cal is going to be able to get it done. I think that these teams are relative equals on a neutral floor, but I do think that just being able to get to Juan Clayton in the fold and the way that this team has been able to operate in general with having Devin Eskew out of the fold has honestly been good for Cal. So I did set Cal as a four-point favorite. I'm going to be willing to lay the number. I do think that you get some late game falling in. I do think that though these teams are slow, they're also very inefficient on defense, so that's going to lead to a few more points in average for both of these teams. Semi-total at 126, so looking over and willing to lay up to three and a half with Cal. 851, 852 on the betting board. It is Houston. They play us at Temple. Temple, we give our own to Lane Kiffin. Go Owls. They're between a 20 to a 20 and a half point underdog with your total between 130 and a half and 131 and a half. I said Houston as a 20 point favorite. 20 and a half is my buy point on Temple. With Temple, they are going to lose the battle on the glass. It's a Houston team that they're always one of the top teams in terms of rebound rate. Houston, number two in the country in terms of points allowed on a per possession basis entering Saturday, depending upon what Tennessee does. They'll either be number one or number two. Jarris Walker has been terrific. 10 points, six boards, shoots 36% from three, and it's a Houston team all of a sudden. They're shooting 35.5% from three. Been talking about it on this podcast quite a bit. Marcus Sasser was doing for some positive progression with his three-point shooting. He's up to shooting 36.5% from three. Draymond Mark shoots 39% from three. Parring these two guys combined for 27 points per game and Jabal Shed. Just so gosh darn efficient. Eight and a half points, three and a half boards, 5.2 assists, shoots 33% from three, but I do think for Temple, a team that has given Houston some fits in the past, including being able to cover at home last season, that they're going to be able to hold in there with Kayleaf Battle and Damian Dung being able to get her done. These two guys combined for 32.7 points, right around 7.5 boards, 4.5 assists. You have both of these guys shooting about 33.5% from three-point range. Heisler Miller chips in their 3.5 assists, 8.5 points per game. It is a Temple squad that they're not quite what they've been on defense in the past. In terms of points a lot on a per-possession basis, typically you find this team in the top 100. This year they're more around 123rd and Luckily enough, they're actually playing much better on the road than they are at home. In a road slash neutral court environment, Temple is giving up 6.4 points fewer per 100 possessions than they are at home. They've been dealing with an injury to their top rebounder, Jamile Reynolds, but that said, you've got a guy like a Jaleel White that gives you 5.5 points, 5.5 rebounds per game. Nick Jordan has been able to chip in their 4.2 rebounds per game, but has been a little bit better recently as he's been able to halt in there about 24 rebounds in the last four contests. I do like the way that he's been able to progress 
a little bit, and it's a Houston team that they do play at a bottom 50 pace in terms of total possessions. They have given up north of 65 points just twice this season, but I do think that Temple going to do their part, going to be able to hold them down a little bit more on defense as Temple themselves has given up 72 points or fewer, and now five out of their last six games, they're starting to get back to their defensive roots, and I do think that this is going to be bit more of a low-scoring slog. I did set my total at 128. I'm diving under with Houston. Can only make them a 20-point favorite, 20.5. That is my buy point on Temple. 853-854 on the betting board. SMU, and they're going to be playing us Wichita State. The Shockers of Wichita State are a very slight underdog of a 1.5 to 2 points, and your total between 133.5 and 134. With SMU made them a two-point favor. One and a half is the maximum on a lay, but I'm on a lay the very small number because with SMU, you've got the better scoring backcourt and Zarek Phelps along with Zach Natal. They've been able to combine for 31 points, 5.2 assists, 3.3 steals, and both guys shoot only about 31% from three. If you gauge it from the beginning of the month of December, you'll find that that's closer to about 34-ish percent from three-point inch. And then you've got Effie Obadiji along with Samuel Williamson combining for 14 rebounds, 18.5 points per game. I like these guys. You do need to give more out of some of your ancillary pieces like Ricardo Wright, Keon Ambrose Hilton. It's really a five-man rotation for SMU, and you don't get a lot from the ancillary pieces, which Wichita State does. Guys like a Kenny Poto, along with Gus Okafer, Xavier Bell, they make contributions for this team, though. It is a little bit more of a top-heavy team. Jaquan Walton, Craig Porter, they combine for 24.6 points. They both give you 5.9 rebounds per game, and they combine to shoot about 33.5% from three for a Wichita State team that they're only shooting about 29.3% from three-point range. And the main calling card all season long has been defense for Wichita State. But now they're 55th in the country in terms of points on a per-possession basis, allowing per-possession 8.7 points more these last three games on average than they have the rest of the season. As for Wichita State, they have now given up at least 69 points in four out of their last five games. Big giant issue for a team that prior to this run, they had really allowed north of 70 points in just, I believe, two games all season long. They were doing a good job being able to tighten up the screws. Porter Jr. is also able to give you a seal and a half at 1.8 blocks per game, so he's got all sorts of versatility. Now, the good news is they've got Melvin Flanagan who has come in. He's been able to give the team some solid contributions, 8.5 points, shooting 44.5% from three after he missed the first six or seven games of the season, but for SMU, though, they have been all over the place with their offense, scoring 53 points for fear in three of the last four games. Maybe they will rise up, got a nice overtime win against Tulsa to be able to build a little bit of confidence for SMU. They leave something to be desired on defense. It turns points a lot on a per possession basis. They're currently clocking in right around 190th, but they're giving up 15 points fewer per 100 possessions at home rather than on the road. Neither of these teams necessarily looking to scorch it up and down the floor, especially with Wichita State, 274th in the country in terms of total possessions per game. So I do think that this is going to be a more controlled game. I did set my total out of 130. I'm diving under with SMU. Made them a two-point favorite with their top-scoring duo. So one to lay up to one and a half with them. 855-856 on the betting board for Minnesota Road faceoff against Wofford. Wofford is an underdog of four and a half points, and your total is 147.5. And I made my number three and a half. I'm going to be one to take four or more with Wofford. Wofford has a guy that I like in Jackson Pavelski running the show. The point guard spot, the freshman has been able to give you 13.5 points. 
3.8 assists per contest, and he shoots 40% from three-point range. He's got a pair of versatile guys in B.J. Mack along with Messiah Jones that do a good job down low. They combine for 10 rebounds. Jones gives you 9.3 points per game. Mack, 15.5 points per game last year. Mack shot over 45% from three this year, just 31% from the outside, but also get two assists, three and a half boards, nine and a half points out of Corey Tripp. Now, the big thing for Wofford is that even though they're actually pretty efficient on offense, they're really inefficient on defense. This is a Wofford team that's in the bottom 50 in terms of total possessions per game. Meanwhile, there's a points a lot on a per-possession basis. You've got a Terrier squad that's 260th in the country for a firmament. They are a little bit more efficient on defense as they're right around 220th, but both of these teams, they do a rock-solid job on offense. Neither of these teams necessarily play fast. Both of these teams let it up on defense, but you've been finding that J.P. Peaks has been able to do a nice job running the show for Furman as he and Mike Bothwell both combined for 7.6 assists per game. Peaks has been able to chip in their 9 points, shoot 35% for 3. Bothwell shoots 34% from distance, 19.5 points per contest. Now the versatility of Jalen Slauson I think gets it done outright for Furman. 1.6 steals, 15 points, 7 rebounds, 3.7 assists. He can give you a triple-double on any given night. Furman, though, they do turn the ball over 12 and a half times per game. It is a Furman squad that they've been a little bit sketchy with their defense, though. They have given up 72 points or fewer in far of their last five games, with the lone exception being an overtime game. Meanwhile, for Wofford, they have been... Having a little bit of a difficult time on defense recently, allowing 76-plus points in two other last three games, but you take a look at this offense, and maybe they will score at least 71 points in three of their last four games. I do think that Wofford going to be able to do a solid job of getting their slower tempo in this game. I do think that this is going to be a game where things are going to be relatively controlled. Very rare that you see a SoCon game on a Sunday, so it is a circumstance where I do think that that votes in favor of the home team. Set my number at a three and a half, so here at four or more, I'm going to be willing to take the points with Wofford and they make my total 143.5. I think that you just don't get enough possessions in this game to be able to get an over. So, going to be taking a look at the under, and I'm looking at the points with Wofford. Last game on the normal Las Vegas betting board before we hit the extra games. 857-858, Washington State. It's a red face off against Colorado. Colorado is a favorite of between 4.5 and 5 points in your total on this game. It is 136 to 136.5. Colorado is a 5-point favorite. 4.5 is a maximum on a lay, but I'm on a lay of 4.5. 5.5 would be my buy point on Washington State as Washington State has been able to do a good job of being able to reduce on the turnovers a little bit. Washington State, a bottom 40 team in terms of total possessions per game. Colorado, a top 50 team in terms of total possessions per game. So we're going to have a tempo war building as you've got Mohamed Gay, who's going to be able to win the battle down low for Washington State. 14 points, 8 boards. He's able to give you a block per game. And then TJ Bamba, she's 36.5% from 3, 15 points per game. But for Washington State, they are a team that with playing with such few possessions, 12 and a half turnovers, that's still a couple too many. And it's a Washington State team that they are a completely different team on defense on the road as compared to at home. Washington State allowing 11.1 points more per 100 possessions when they're on the road rather than when they are at home. And it's a Colorado team that they got a nice edge. suffering KJ Simpson. 17 points, four boards, 3.8 assists. Shoots about 33% for three. Now Colorado, they only shoot about 67.5% of the free throw line, 31.5% for three with 14.3 turnovers per game. But they do play at a rather rapid pace. Gotta love Giovanni Hadley, who's been able to come in as a six foot six combo player, give you eight and a half points, six and a half rebounds per game. He's been really a nice contributor in a wide variety of angles as he's also been able to 
give out three plus assists in two out of the last four games as well. You got someone like Nikkei Clifford who trips in there six and a half points, two steals per game, and you've got a Washington State team that has been seeing much less facilitation recently. I'm Justin Boom Boom Powell. Still 10 points, three assists per contest, shooting 39% from three-point range, but not been able to contribute as much in terms of facilitation. Eight assists in the last five contests. I am not sure what has been happening there, but they've been taking the ball out of his hands quite a bit more, and it is a Washington State team that they are just 9-11 and 11 straight up. Their straight-up record does not indicate the way that they have actually played this season, but they have scored 66 points or fewer in each other last three games. Meanwhile, you do have a Colorado bunch that they've been stuck in the mud a little bit themselves, 68 points or fewer in four of their last five games, the lone exception being when they scored 72, so I do think that things are going to be tied down a little bit more in this game, even if there is some late game falling, semi-total 135.5, so taking the under in this ordeal, and with Colorado one away up to four and a half with them. Five and a half or more. It's going to be a take on Washington State. Now we get the extra games. The normal betting board picks are complete, but there are some extra games today, so we go into the bonus. This starts with 306. 6-11, 306-612, Long Island plays us to Central Connecticut. Central Connecticut between a 6.5 to a 7-point favorite in your total between 142.5 and 143. Made my number 5.5, so I'm actually going to be willing to take the points with Long Island. Long Island is a squad that they play very rapidly with their pace. Top 20 in terms of possessions per game. They're also in the bottom 30 in terms of points allowed on a per-possession basis. Fortunately for them, Central Connecticut State, they have not been able to do a great job of batting down the hatches thus far this season. 270th in the country in terms of points allowed on a per-possession basis, giving up right around 17.5 points more per 100 possessions when they're on the road than they are at home. Now, Central Connecticut does have Nigel Scantleberry doing a good job doling out the ball. 3.5 assists, 1.8 seals per game, chipping in their 10.5 points per game. And Kellen Amos shoots 38% from the outside, 14.5 points per game, but... Central Connecticut State has one guy giving you North Hill 3.8 rebounds per game. Andre Sani has been able to give you 8.5 points to go along with those 7.4 rebounds per game. Long Island should be able to win that battle on the glass as you got a guy that I like that comes in from UMKC and Jacob Johnson. 6 for 5, versatile guy who gives you 11.5 points, 5.8 rebounds per game. Long Island needs to clean up the 16 turnovers per game, but it's not like Central Connecticut. It's generating a lot of seals. Both of these teams give between 6.5 and 7 seals per contest. You've been able to have someone in and Mr. Keon Burns be able to chip in there. He points five boards, shoots 35.5% from three-point range. Very up and down with this scoring. But Marco Melitic, he is not 17.5 points per contest for this Long Island team. He has been able to chip in there 14 plus points at each of the last five games. And he's been able to cut down on the turnovers as well. He has only given out right around nine turnovers in the last five games. So that's beneficial for an LIU team that shoots 34% for three. I do think that in the end, Central Connecticut gets the job done. But Long Island, they're going to be able to play even up on the glass turnover it's likely to cause Long Island to not win the game outright, but going set this number at five and a half, six or more taking the points with Long Island. I do think that things are going to be throttled down a little bit more because this is also an early tip time. So I did set my total at a 141 and a half. So here at 142 plus, looking at the under and looking at taking the points with Long Island. Three of six, six, 13, three of six, six, 14. You've got Sacred Heart on the road facing off against Wagner. Wagner between a four to four and a half point favorite. Total is between 134 and a half and 135. May Wagner, a three and a half point favorite. I'm going to be willing to take four or more here with Sacred Heart. Sacred Heart looking to play a little bit more quickly, about 100th in the country in terms of total possessions per game. And they're going up against a Wagner team that they are in the bottom 75 in terms of total possessions per game. These are two very much opposite teams as for Wagner, you've had Delani Hunt do a nice job as being the main headline scorer. He's been able to chip in there about 13 points per contest for a Wagner team that 
as a whole. They are really looking to build themselves up on defense as they rank in the top 80 with that regard in terms of points slot on a per-possession basis. You do have also the gentleman that comes in from the swag, Brandon Brown. Good versatility at 6'5", 8.8 rebounds, 9 net points. Shoots 36% from 3 for a bunch at. They shoot 32% from 3, 66.5% the free throw line. In a late game following situation, that's not so terrific. Zaire Williams, Javier Esquera, both give you about 8 points per game for this Wagner team as well, but for Sacred Art, they should be able to win the battle on the glass. You've got more size with Brandon Johnson, Nico Galetti combining for 15 rebounds per game. Galetti, 15 and a half points, chips in there, two steals, a block per game, and you've also got a 40% three-point shooter. Enjoy Riley, that trips in there, 11 and a half points per game as well. It's the Sacred Art team with good versatility that has had their issues on defense, but still, 71 points of fear surrendered in three out of their last five games. Meanwhile, you've got a Wagner team that they've been able to break the 70 point plateau three times as far this season against D1 competition, so it's a good old situation of something's got to give. I do think that things are going to be thrown downward in terms of the tempo in this game for Wagner. They started out the year very, very poor against the spread at 3-10. and 10. They've been able to cover each other last two to make things a little bit more respectable, but that said, in a late game felling situation, I do not trust Wagner at all, so I set my number at 3.5 or more, taking the points with Sacred Art, and here with the total set it at a 131.5, so diving under 306-615-306-616. St. Francis of New York playing us Merrimack. The Merry Men of Merrimack are a 1-1.5 to point favorite, and your total is between 120 and 121. I set my total at a 116. We've seen two Merrimack games go over the total, and one of those games was their most recent one against Wagner. Not necessarily because it was a high-scoring affair. It was 62-57, to but that total was 116.5, so it barely crept over. This is a Merrimack squad that they've got all the goods to be able to play unders because they shoot it very poorly at 28.5% from three. They turn the ball over 14.5 times per game. They're in the bottom one under in terms of possessions per game, and they generate 10.5 steals per game as well. So they're not allowing points, and they're not scoring points, and they go up against the St. Francis team that is coming off of scoring 61 points against a St. Francis of Pennsylvania team that is in the bottom 50 nationally in terms of points allowed on a per-possession basis. You do have balance with St. Francis of PA. You've got Zion Bethay, Rob Higgins, Larry Moreno, Tedrick Wilcox. They combine for about 40 points per contest. All three of these guys, they combine to give you between 2.4 and 3.6 rebounds per game, respectively. You've only got really one guy that gives you north of four rebounds per game. That would be Josiah Harris. Eight points, 7.7 rebounds per game with Moreno, Wilcox, and Bethea. They all shoot between 36 and 40.5% and from three-point range. And then Higgins, he chips in there three and a half assists per game, but you don't necessarily have a ton of depth with this team. Meanwhile, for Merrimack. You've got your main guy in Jordan Minor is my major 17 points, 8.9 rebounds per game. And then Ziggy Reed, he's got right around 6'6 six six versatility, four boards, 12.5 points, he's 32.5% from three-point range pass that. Just a lot of guys like Michael Deering. You throw in there someone like a De- Devon Savage. They give you between four and a half and five points per contest. A lot of guys just looking to chip in, doing a good job as grimy defensive stoppers. It is a St. Francis team that they only rank right around about 270th in terms of possessions per game. They're not looking to play very fast now. St. Francis of New York, 242nd in the country in terms of points allowed on a per-possession basis. But in Merrimack games, scoring goes to die. Last time these two teams played, it was 65-53. to Merrimack got the job done. Neither team got more than 50 shot attempts up. And Merrimack in that game actually went 6-15. of 
15 from three-point range, but you had a combined 32 turnovers in that game. I expect something very similar. Slow, grimy, sloppy game, and I do think that Jordan Miner going to be the best player in this game. So Merrimack is a two-point favorite as a result. Look at LA, the very small one number that I am seeing with Merrimack, and Sunday total 116, so diving under. 306-617, You've got UMass Lowell, and they're going to be playing us Brian. Brian is a three-and-a-half point underdog with your total between 158 and 158.5. This is my total 152.5. I'm going to be willing to dive under. You do have a Bryant team that they rank in the top 25 in terms of total possessions per game. And UMass Lowell, they're a top 75 team in terms of tempo as well. But the UMass Lowell, this team has been able to do a relatively solid job on defense. In terms of points a lot on a per possession basis, they did have their hiccup against Albany a few weeks ago. But still a squad that ranks 61st in the country in terms of just sheer defensive efficiency and got a lot of great guards on this UMass Lowell team. They've been dealing with a little bit of an injury to Allende Akeem, but he should be good to go in this one. Did play against UMBC a couple days ago. Did not score at all, but was able to give out three assists, so will probably be a designated passer in this one. You do have Everett Hammond along with Yuri Covington. Both of these guys shoot at North Bay 38.5% clip from three-point range. Covington, about nine points per contest. Hammond fills it up 12.5 points, 5.5 boards. Chips in there nearly a seal per contest. And then you've got a pair of guys down low that do a solid job. Max Brooks has been able to contribute about nine points, 5.5 rebounds per game. He is also able to give you nearly two blocks contest and Abdul Karim Koulibaly has been able to give you eight boards, a steal, a block. He's coming off of 24 and 11 in the team's last game. And you've got a Bryant team that they've been held down a little bit more recently. Now they have been able to bust out for 80 plus points against New Hampshire, NJIT, and Albany. But prior to that, they were having a little bit more of a slog of a go of it in December into early January. You've got a pair of guys in Charles Pride and Earl Timberlake bringing Sexy back. They combined for 14 and a half rebounds, about 29 points per game with Pride shooting 40% for three. Antoine Walker down low, 7.3 rebounds per game with Sharif Gross Bullock is your main floor general. Three assists, 17 and a half points per game, shooting 39.5% for three. But for a Bryant team that plays so fast, they don't get a lot out of their ancillary pieces. Miles Lattimore, Doug Eater, they combine for about 12 points per contest. You got Taylor Brusford, who's been able to give you about 6 points per game. He's been up and down with his scoring all season long. And for UMass Lowell, they've been able to do a good job, really, aside from that game against Albany, of being able to hold teams down. They've given up 70 points or fewer in four of their last six games. I do think that they're going to be able to, at the very least, provide a little bit of speed bump to Bryant in this game. I did set UMass Lowell as a result as a 2.5 point favorite. I think that this is going to be a little bit of a tempo war with Bryant. I'm going to be willing to take 3.5 with them, though I do think that UMass Lowell gets the outright win. Semi-total at 152.5, so I'm also going to be diving under. 306619, 306620. Vermont is going to be playing us NJIT. NJIT, a 12.5 to a 13 point underdog with your total 133 and with NJIT, did set them as a 13-point underdog. 12.5 is the max. I'm willing to lay with Vermont, but going to be willing to lay it with Vermont. Vermont really does need to find that main facilitator as Robin Duncan is right now having to do everything. He's a 6'6 six six combo player, giving you 7.7 points, 6.8 rebounds, 3.8 assists, nearly a steal per contest, and a partridge in a pear tree. I thought that you would see Dylan Penn, who comes in for Bellarmine, do a little bit more of this. Fewer than two assists per game out of him as he and Aaron Delani have been able to combine for 23 points per contest. Delani shoots 38% from three-point range, and then you've also been able to get 44% three-point shooting and 95% free-throw shooting out of TJ Hurley. A little bit of freshman that's been able to come on recently. Double-figure amount of points in three of the last five games for a Vermont team that has been shockingly bad on defense this year. Typically, this Vermont team, they play relatively slowly. They're relatively efficient on both sides of things. Offense has still been relatively solid, but 
terms of points allowed on a per-possession basis. It's a Vermont team that they're now clocking in right around 202nd. Meanwhile, they go up against an NJIT team that they have left a lot to be desired. It's an NJIT team that they are in the bottom 100 in terms of total possessions per game, 276 in terms of points allowed on a per-possession basis. Miles Coleman giving you 14 points, two assists in the backcourt, shooting 37.5% for three, but NJIT, they shoot 65% at the free line. You've got Kevin Asawi, who's able to give you 8.5 rebounds per game, and Solomon D. Kite chips in there five and a half boards, seven and a half points per game, but these are the only two guys that give you north of really four rebounds per game. You really don't have a lot of facilitation outside of Miles Coleman. Not a lot of three-point shooting either, though I will say, you do have Adam S shooting 44% from three-point range, chips in there 9.8 points per game. It's been able to give you 14 plus points in three out of the last four games. I don't necessarily know how sustainable it is, and for NJIT, the defense, it is really starting to unravel on them. They've given up at least 67 points each other last five games, and North of 70 points in three other last five. For Vermont, it does feel like they're starting to get back to their defensive roots just a little bit more as they've been able to give up 70 points or fewer in three other last five games. And if you want to date it back a little bit further, they've given up 70... two points or fewer, and now nine out of their last 11 games as well. So, in circumstance where I do think that Vermont going to be able to slow this game down a little bit more, I did set my total out of 132, so I am diving under in this ordeal, and with Vermont, one to lay up to 12.5 with them, 306-621, 306-622, Maine hopes to not get Maine as they play us to Binghamton. Binghamton between a 2.5 and a 3-point underdog. Totals between 139 and 139.5. Feels like a little bit of an auto-wag total. You got a pair of teams that are not playing very fast. Binghamton, are 20th in the country in terms of total possessions per game. You got a main team that they are right around 270th in terms of total possessions per game. Both of these teams, they certainly do have their Falters on defense. Got a main bunch that's right around 300th in the country in terms of points allowed on a per-possession basis. Meanwhile, you take a look at Binghamton, and they're clocking in more on 275th. I will say for Binghamton, they're actually giving up 3.5 points fewer per 100 possessions on the road rather than at home. But for Maine, what I think is the real X-factor here, which you're able to get out of Kellentines. He does it all. 14.5 points, 5 boards, 3.8 assists, at 2.9 steals per game, which that's tied in the top 3 in all of college basketball. And then Jedi Jayuzapatis has been able to shoot 43% from 3-point range for a main team that they shoot 35% from the outside. They generate 9.5 steals per game. They turn the ball over 12.4 times per contest. They do a relatively solid job there. And for Binghamton, Jacob Falco, he's been able to give the same 14.5 points, 3.5 assists per game. You don't necessarily have a ton down low. The Armand Reed has been able to team up very well with Miles Gibson for about 11.8 rebounds per game. They give you combined about 22 points per contest, but they both shoot below 30% from three as a whole. Binghamton, they shoot 30% from the outside. They turn the ball over a little bit over 13 times per game. You do need to get a little bit more, in my opinion, of Christian Inkson, who in past years has been able to give the same five plus rebounds per game, has been able to do a solid job with this three-point shooting. This year, shooting just 28% from the outside. Binghamton has been able to get hot. They've won four straight games, not necessarily due to their offense. They have scored 68 points or fear in regulation in all four of these games. Meanwhile, you've got a main team that, well, they have been getting mained as they have been giving up at least 71 points so far in the last five games. Situation of something's got to give. I do think that Maine going to do a good job holding down Binghamton. I do think that they're going to be able to force some turnovers with Tynes generating seals. So, I did set Maine as a four-point favorite. Won't delay the number. I don't think that Binghamton does their part on this total set at a 132. So, also diving under. And we we'll wrap things up with 306, 623, 306 624. It is Fairly Dickinson, and they hope to be fairly priced against Sonell. Fairly Dickinson, the home team, is a 6 to 6.5 point favorite. Totals between 149.5 and 150. 
did semi-total at a 143. Now, both of these teams rank in the bottom 100 in terms of points allowed on a per-possession basis, but for Sonil, they have just hit a massive wall with their offense because they're very one-dimensional. They rely upon pretty much three guys, and Andrew Sims throwing their Max Zygorowski and Isaiah Burnett. They've been able to combine for it in the pocket about 40 points per game. They all give you between 4.1 and 4.5 rebounds per game. Burnett, 2.5 assists per game. Zygorowski shoots 41.5% for three as a 6'8 combo player. Other two guys combined to shoot less than 30% for three, but you just take a look at the Sun Elegate team, and they were able to get to 73 points against Long Island. Long Island is one of the poopiest defenses in all of college basketball. Prior to that, it was a Sonel team that they were held below 70 points in 10 out of their last 12 games. And you got a fairly Dickinson team that they have been all over the place with their defense. In the last five games, they have given up 57, 89, 80, 57, and 92 points. Though one of those 57s came against Stonehill about a week or so ago. In that game, you had Stonehill actually shoot 10 of 24 from three-point range, but they turned the ball over 15 times a game. And for Fairly Dickinson, they now have back in the fold Hero Blyjen, which is very big for them. He was out for about eight games or so. He's been able to give the team 11.8 points, four and a half rebounds per game. Provides the team with a little bit of depth, but for Fairleigh Dickinson, even though they don't have to save a ton down though, you don't have that with Stonehill at all. Stonehill does not have a single guy that gives you north of four and a half rebounds per game, which means that they actually win this battle as you've got Joe Munden Jr., coupled with Sean Moore, they'd be able to combine for in that neighborhood about 15 points, 10 rebounds per game. Munden is able to shoot 34.5% per three. Fairleigh Dickinson as a whole shoots 34.5% per three with having a pair of guys in Amari Roberts, Long Grant Singleton, combining for 33 points, six half boards, seven assists, and 3.3 steals per game with Singleton shooting about 41% for three, 93% at the free throw line. It is a fairly Dickinson team that has been able to do a relatively solid job with their offense. And it's a fairly Dickinson team that they're looking to gun it. They're in the top 100 in terms of possessions per game. And Stonehill, they've never really looked to be a super fast team. They're right around 187th in the country in terms of total possessions per game, I will say. Very strangely, they're playing nearly five possessions per game more when they are on the road than at home. So I do think that this is going to be a little bit of a higher scoring game than the 65-57 to 57 slog that we saw the last time around. But Stonehill is just not getting points up on the board right now. Honestly, the defense has not been too bad for Stonehill. They have not allowed more than 68 points this calendar year. And for Stonehill, last time they gave up north of 70 points, they gave up 73 to St. Francis of Pennsylvania. So, honestly, the team has been able to do an okay job on defense, just not giving you a lot on offense. I do think that Stonehill has enough to be a hold in there because neither of these teams does a very good job on the glass. And this is a Stonehill team that has collected. They shoot 76% of the free throw line, 35% from three-point range. They go up against an FDU team that certainly has their warts on defense. So, 7 I think that things get slowed down looking at the under. I'm fairly concerned. Claim make them a five and a half point favorite. We'll take six or more with Stonehill and that will wrap things up. For the Sunday edition of Coast Coast Hoops, our part of the Beeson Family Podcast, a big thanks to our good friend Blake Lovell for joining me in the last segment. Does a great job over there at Southeastern 14. If you do like hearing from this fine podcast, Coast Coast Hoops, you're able to subscribe wherever your podcast, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, and TuneIn. If you've got a question, comment, segment idea, what have you for this podcast, you do have one of two ways we offer those in. First one is my Twitter timeline at GNN underscore D1. Keep in mind, letters ZM. Maybe it does not matter. As per usual, please do send these into the timeline. And the other way, that is fine in Apple Podcast Review. If you rate this podcast five stars, it is very much appreciated from there. You're able to the fire room, whatever you'd like to hear on this podcast. Buy that five star review. Coming at you guys every single day throughout the college basketball season. That means I'm coming at you once again tomorrow. Thank you so much for tuning in.
What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith, host of the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and I answer your phone calls and respond to your tweets. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions and straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. All that and more. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. Join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. We gather a seasoned elder, myself as the middle generation, and a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations, prepare to engage or hear perspectives that literally no one else has had. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 